Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Mass General Cancer Center, dedicated to providing compassionate care and cancer specialists who are experienced in the cancer you have. When you hear the word cancer, their team is ready. Learn more at massgeneral.org slash cancer. Coming up on Boston Public Radio, black athletes represent New England's colleges on the field, but often is a completely different story. Of the region's 15 Division I colleges, only one employs a black athletic director, and the story is much the same for the rest of New England schools, according to an investigation by the Boston Globe. It's a stark set of numbers made even worse by the fact that the problem is worse in New England than anywhere else in the country. We'll get the whole story and more from sports reporter Trini Kuznarek when she's with us up next. I'm Jared Bowen, filling in for Jim Browdy, for those who don't want to hit the polls, Massachusetts is embarking on an ambitious initiative to allow voters to vote by mail. While it seems straightforward, it's left residents with questions. When does a ballot need to be mailed? Can it be dropped off instead? And most importantly, will it make it to the ballot box in time? Joining us later to answer our questions and yours about mail-in voting is Senator Becca Rausch. That and more ahead on Boston Public Radio. Welcome to Boston Public Radio. I am Marjorie Egan. Jim Browdy is on vacation. WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen is filling in and watching the RNC convention from beginning to end like we're all supposed to do now. Hi, Jared. Hi. How are you, Marjorie? <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm okay. I'm okay. We'll find out how our listeners are in just a second. Uh, we did see the president uh, last night at the uh, Republican National Convention, and President Trump had billed the RNC as the one that ha- would have a more positive tone than the Democrats. But if last night was an example of his idea of uplift, what must his darker impulses look like? The RNC kicked off the convention by positioning Trump as the only man who can make America great again, again, the only one who can save America from the ravages of the Democratic Party, from the Democratic cities, like ours, I guess, that are filled with angry mobs to the socialist agenda of Joe Biden, who wants to take away your guns, give away your jobs, muzzle you with a punishing brand of political correctness as well. We're opening up the lines and asking you, did this work? Did last night make a convincing case for another four years? Did Donald Trump Jr. or Kimberly Guilfoyle convincingly make a case that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris would keep you and future generations from achieving the American dream? Uh, Trump fans, did last night speak to your values? Republicans who maybe you're not so sure about Trump, what do you think? And Democrats and independents, do you think some undecided voters were won over last night? Do you agree with the portrait of America that they portrayed last night as someone who lives in a democratic city? I, I, I don't feel under threat, Jared, uh, downtown. Matter of fact, downtown's kind of empty these days, <laughs> tragically. Very, very empty. Anyway, our number is 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. You can email us at bpr at wgbh.org. You can tweet us at Boss Public Radio. The phone again, 877 8970. So what do you think, Jared? Well, I, I think we have a very clear picture of what the Republican 
agenda is going to be going forward. There was very little talk about the coronavirus. What little talk there was was how ably the president, in their estimation, has handled the coronavirus by shutting down borders immediately uh, and getting PPE and ventilators out immediately. Again, their claims uh, and repeated talk about the economy, how he has been the greatest president to to build an economy this country has ever had, uh, and then that he will preserve our neighborhoods and freedom of speech and religion. I mean, that, that came down, and, and that was the, the big picture that he tried to paint, is that if you live in an American city, that it is just rife with protest, it's being ransacked, it's crime, it's villainy. I guess it's almost like Gotham, as depicted in, in Batman, uh, and that the Democrat, yeah. Democrats are in league uh, to support that because it's called protest. Yeah, well, a little bit later we'll hear from uh, Mark and Patty McCluskey who basically are saying you better watch out white people in the suburbs because the black people are coming and it's going to be hell on wheels. I mean, it was really just not even a veiled kind of racist uh, uh, attack. But, you know, Let's try to start an up note here. I mean, the, the, the keynote speaker last night uh, was a, a senator who, who behaved like Republicans usually do in, in, in previous conventions, kind of an up, uplifting uh, moment. This is, a, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, this is a Senator Tim Scott, and he's from South Carolina. He's the only uh, a black senator, um, but he sounded rather optimistic. Let's hear from him. We live in a world that only wants you to believe in the bad news, racially, economically, and culturally polarizing news. The truth is, our nation's arc always bends back towards fairness. We are not fully where we want to be, but I thank God Almighty we are not where we used to be. We are always striving to be better. Uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about Nikki Haley as well. I think the two of them are clearly contenders for 2024. Um, for my money, Tim Scott was a more impressive contender for 2024 than Nikki Haley, who was so afraid to upset the president. Um, uh, she she talked about uh, getting rid of the uh, Confederate flag um, after that terrible shooting um, in, uh, uh, in her state and how... Uh, that was a, a wonderful moment because obviously the Confederate f- flag is a symbol of racism, but she couldn't say the words Confederate flag. I think she just called it a defi- divisive symbol. Uh, that was what she called it. I mean, a lot of her speech was talking about the fact that there isn't racism in America in her uh, estimation, uh, but at the same time, I mean, literally sentence by sentence, she switches in pointing out that as the daughter of two Indians, that she faced discrimination, or her family faced discrimination in coming up in this country. Uh, you know, you, it's, it was an argument that I think is trying to strike chords. And also, I think what the Senator Tim Scott did, where he really tapped into, is this argument that uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats have taken people of color for granted in this country just assuming that because they are the Democratic Party, they are the Democratic candidates, that they'll automatically get those votes. And that was a big, uh, big argument last night that the Republicans are trying to put themselves forward as a party for people of color. So let's that was those were the high points. I think we can agree. Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Um, the low point for me, I don't know about you, Jared, was Kimberly Guilfoyle. She is the uh, 
former wife of the governor of California. She is now the girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr. Um, she really laid into California. Maybe she's still mad at the governor there. I don't know. She really attacked it as a place with human sex drug traffickers and socialists and land to discarded heroin needles in parks and on and on and on. Uh, but let's hear a little bit of her uh, presentation, which is getting a lot of traction this morning. President Trump believes in you. He emancipates and lifts you up to live your American dream. You are capable. You are qualified. You are powerful. And you have the ability to choose your life and determine your destiny. Don't let the Democrats take you for granted. Don't let them step on you. Don't let them destroy your families, your lives, and your future. Don't let them kill future generations because they told you and brainwashed you and fed you lies that you weren't good enough. Okay, first of all, Ava Perone is r- rolling <laughs> over in her grave for the, the, the lifting of the arms. Patty Lupone, who played <laughs> Ava Perone, is rushing over with her Tony to say, I had this one. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was pretty extreme. And as people point out, that came from the, the hall in Washington, D.C. that was empty except yeah. for – a few people, and Kimberly Guilfoyle. I'm going to steal a line I read somewhere this morning that uh, she was described as being on the verge of spontaneous combustion. <laughs> but, but I must say, we'll get to the cause in just a second. You know, I, I used to get upset uh, last time around when people criticized Hillary Clinton for yelling, because Hillary Clinton did yell a lot. Um, Kimberly Guilfoyle was also yelling nonstop. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it worked well for Clinton. I certainly don't think it worked well uh, for Guilfoy. Um, it's it's a, not fair, but I think men can get away with yelling and women can't. And oh my God, that was really tough last night. Anyway, let's go to the calls. John and Gardner. Hello, John. What'd you think? Good morning, kids. How are we all doing? Great. Um, I think, first of all, it was very cruel. I think it was very cruel that nobody told Kimberly Guilfoyle that there was no audience. I think that was just mean, mean hearted. <laughs> it's hard to see beyond those stage lights. Donald Jr., <laughs> Donald Jr., the smart son, I thought he was going to punch himself in the face by accident with all the hand gesturing and movement he had going on. Jeepers, creepers. You already mentioned a couple from St. Louis. Yeah. I mean, I guess they should get points for being direct. How? <laughs> I mean, you already said it, Marjorie, but, I mean, holy cow. I mean, how, how much, uh, I, like I said, I guess we should give them points for being direct because they didn't dance around it at all. It was basically, you know, keep those black heathens out of our, our neighborhoods and we're all going to burst into flames. You know, you oh know, John, hold on for a second. I was going to hold this till later, but as long as we mentioned the McCloskeys twice, why don't we just play a little bit of their sound? Uh, this was Mark and Patty McCloskey, and you might remember the picture of them. They were uh, Black Lives uh, protesters marching um, outside her house. It, in the pictures, it didn't show a big crowd of people, and it didn't show anyone particularly menacing them. They were just walking by the house, and some of them uh, looked at them and talked to them because they had guns appointed at the protesters. So anyway, here's what they said last night. You've seen us on your TV screens and Twitter feeds. You know that we're not the kind of people who back down. Thankfully, neither is Donald Trump. President Trump will defend the God-given right of every American to protect their homes and their families. And and Mrs. McCloskey talked about uh, people watching from their quiet neighborhoods as um, affordable as people come into their neighborhoods and turn them into hellish war zones. So, so John from Gardner, I guess um, uh, you were not impressed. Is that the overall? (laughs) 
not particularly. I will say <laughs> Tim Scott was I, I thought I thought that Trump might make a change and he still could, I suppose, and get rid of Pence. I thought Tim Scott might be the outside. Um, I was going to say dark horse, horse, but it might not be the best choice of words. I thought he might be somebody that he was going to zip in there as a VP candidate, but I guess I was wrong about that, unless he does it at the last minute. But, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure the Trump people loved it, and those of us that are not Trump people did not. John, guys, thank, you. Thank, yeah, you. thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the call. It's interesting. You hear a lot of people online this morning, the stories I've read, um, that think that Don Trump Jr. raised his ante usually last night, that he's uh, got star quality, that gave a good speech. He didn't say anything about his father as a father and kind of build that empathy personality of Donald Trump in, in the intimate family uh, portrait that you kind of expect from a son for his father. But, you know... Lots of people thought he did a, a, a great job, um, and and we'll see if he's uh, up there in 2024 as a possibility, too. What do well, you think? He, he spent a lot of time talking about the protests last night, really painting that portrait that we were talking about earlier about how uh, the cities in this country right now are just rife with this violence uh, and protests as if protests shouldn't happen. And I, it occurred to me that maybe he should visit Boston and take a walk on the Freedom Trail to see exactly where protests was fundamental to the creation and formation of this country. Uh, it's a good thing we're not pouring uh, hot oil and tar on people anymore, as the early <laughs> colonists did. Uh, but that was the fabric, that was the fiber in the founding of the, this country. But it's being it's being uh, changed as and described as violence and, and not a voice. You know, as long as we're piling on to Kimberly Guilfoyle, she called herself a first-generation American. And I can only guess that she's confused. Her mother is from Puerto Rico, which, which you know, people in Puerto Rico have been citizens since, I believe, 1917. It's a territory. Her, so she can't be a first generation on that. And first generation is somebody who came from another country, was born in another country and came here. Her father's from Ireland. But I don't know if she was trying to pull that off and wasn't aware that Puerto Rico's a territory or was confused about... Uh, she's second generation on her father's side, but she's nowhere near first generation. So anyway, Brendan in the car. What do you think, Brendan? Hey, Marjorie, Jared, I hope you were able to get some sleep last night uh, after watching that. <laughs> that is the challenge. It <laughs> is the challenge. That's right. Challenge. Uh, I, I was on the edge of spontaneous combustion with the next particular kill for her, so uh, I'm surprised she didn't lay on uh, But I got to tell you, I, you know, the, the Republican Party has mastered, you know, sort of campaigning by fear. Right. Uh, if you remember George W. Bush in 2004 and, you know, all the way back to H.W. Bush and the terrible ads against Dukakis and Reagan. I mean, they've been doing this a long time. Uh, but this is like next level. I mean, it, it's almost fantasy land level. Yeah. Uh, type of America they expect their voters to believe in. Uh, and I just I just don't understand how any person in this country can carry that type of hate, and, uh, sort of vengeful attitude towards their neighbors. Uh, when I imagine their everyday experiences, their neighbors are good people, just like my neighbors are. Um, and so I just, you know, it, it was amazing to, to take in. And I don't know if I can watch it again tonight for my own sanity. Um, but I'll, I'll say this, sort of just, you know, uh, closing closing thought. There was not much about other people in this. This was all about Donald Trump. You know, they're not going to have a policy platform. Uh, because why have a policy platform if you can have a cult instead? Um, and I think the convention, the RNC convention, just sort of, you know, um, spells that out. This is all about Trump. It's what the Republican Party stands for, and that's about it. 
Yeah, you know, that's a great point, Brendan, that, that uh, um, some of the commentators were making last night, that, it, it, that the Republican Party has become the, the party of Trump. This was all about the, the, the president. You know, we were, it was all about things you hear about on Fox News, cancel culture, a bunch of socialists, communists, radical agenda, all these angry, vengeful mobs. Uh, you, you know, it was uh, every place under siege. I just, I mean, yeah, yeah. Are there are there protests now after that terrible shooting in Wisconsin? Have there been protests in Portland? Are, are, is there been looting and vandalism? Yes, but I think it's amazing that for the most part, protests have been peaceful, and it's not clear to me that the people that are doing the lind, the looting, and the vandalism are necessarily part of that protest. But they're people that are taking advantage of that opportunity to make the protesters look bad. And with not that it needs defending, because again, this isn't fundamentally about violence or ravaging cities. But the the only prolonged protests I think we've seen in this country have been in Portland. And this is the, the, the pictures they were painting of our cities, as we know, at least here in Boston, is, is certainly not the case. Marjorie, as you mentioned, so many people have vacated uh, cities if they're able to to uh, spend the coronavirus time elsewhere with family or, or however, so they don't have to be downtown in the city. It's just it's not how uh, was described. And the other thing, too, you wonder if if this did seem to be a reach to the Trump's base uh, that we've talked about so many times. He's got to enlarge that base somewhat to win. So you're wondering if the theory is that if you can scare enough white people in the suburbs into thinking that, you know, Armageddon is around the corner, that maybe those voters will come back to him. I I don't know. Um, but we also have to remember that the Republican National Convention has taken, is taking this time to respond to the DNC. We, we know from what we've read that a lot of the programming was fairly last minute uh, so that they could take their time to respond to see what the DNC had done. In fact, I think there were even elements they may have borrowed or at least echo, including the president meeting with individuals, just like we saw Joe Biden meeting with individuals mm-hmm. to have these one-on-one or one-on-five conversations. Uh, but I think that they came away from the DNC realizing that it was a week-long attack on the president himself, and so they have to answer that by building up the president for this coming week. And by the way, you should look at PolitiFact or some other good fact-checking source because there were a lot. There was a lot of lying going on last night and misrepresenting of the facts. Joyce from New Bedford, thank you for calling. Hi. Hi. Um, you were saying that first of all, you were saying that you weren't scared, but you're not living in Portland. You're not down the street from Joyce. You still there? I guess we lost Joyce. Maybe, maybe, we can try to get her back, but she apparently is gone now. 877-301-8970. Where are we going next, you guys? Let's jo- Joyce is gone, so let's go to... Uh, uh, it looks like we're having a little bit of technical difficulty, so we'll go back to oh. our calls in, in just a minute. Well, that will give us an opportunity to play some sound because let's hear, let's hear from Don Jr., the president's son, uh, who uh, was featured last night. Obviously, here he is. This Biden is a good promise to take that money back out of your pocket and keep it in the swamp. That makes sense, though, considering Joe Biden is basically the Loch Ness monster of the swamp. For the past half century, he's been lurking around in there. He sticks his head up every now and then to run for president. Then he disappears and doesn't do much in between. Okay, that was Don Jr., who from some quarters is getting a lot of kudos this morning as a forceful speaker with star power uh, who could be up there in consideration for 2020. You guys, are things working again or are things not working again phone-wise? If not, I'll keep talking. 
It looks like they are. So let's uh, enjoy from New Bedford. If, if you can call back, we will try to take your call. We apologize for, for losing you there. Uh, let's go next to Tom from Cambridge. Hi, Tom. Uh, hey, kitties. I'm going to make this quick so I can go off and combust spontaneously myself. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to I focus on two words. Two words. First is civilization. How can we expect barbarians like Trump and his family to pretend protect civilization when they're uncivilized? We have a president who's only semi-literate, you know. Uh, and then, then the other word is apocalypse. We can't possibly trust the administration and party that gave us the pandemic uh, disaster, economic depression, racial justice crisis, and a crisis in democracy. So they should choose their words more carefully. Otherwise, they'll be battered with them in return. Thanks very much. Okay, Tom, thank you very much for the call. It is true that uh, last night it was re- it was revisionism of Trump's record in terms of the coronavirus. You know, he he it was as if he came in and rescued uh, America. And in fact, we're in the worst shape of any place in the entire world. Uh, happily, things are getting a little bit better in terms of new cases, but we're still kind of in a big mess. It was revisionist history about that. It was uh, outright uh, misrepresentation about Joe Biden's record. Joe Biden, for example, is not uh, wanted to fund the police department. Some people do. He doesn't. He's not going to outlaw fracking. He just doesn't want any new fracking leases. Uh, there was a lot of uh, misinformation about about that. Trump himself said that the Democrats are getting rid of postal workers. That's ridiculous. The House just passed this $25 billion bill to fund the Postal Service. Uh, it hasn't gotten in, to the Senate yet, but it's, it's Trump and his new appointee, DeJo- uh, um, uh, Louis DeJoy, who's, who's, <laughs> who's taking down the Postal Service. It's not the uh, Democrats. So you have to be very careful because, um, and needless to say, uh, he may claim he's done well in the coronavirus, but polls show the vast majority of Americans... Um, don't think so. Well, Governor Cuomo does. Did you see, did you see that that video <laughs> oh, last yes, night? Yes, that's right. Where they where they yeah posted kind of a gauzy video of of all the things the president has done, but butting up bites of the president's most vocal criti- critics, like Governor Cuomo of New York, saying uh, how grateful they are for for the federal help and, and painting this picture like we're all, we have all been in this together. Uh, when of course the president had so often left it to the states to manage through this crisis. But of course, at the time Governor Cuomo said that he was desperate to get help from the federal government and realized that he had to. Fly flatter the president, as everybody else does, to try to get uh, some help from him. And it was in that mode that Cuomo said those things. I think if you watched Andrew Cuomo every day in those press conferences, to say he was a fan of the president and to say he was happy with the level of federal help that New York State got is a misrepresentation of the facts, is it not? I would argue so, yes. All right, we are take, talking about the RNC and taking your calls, asking you if one day into the convention is the president making a convincing case for another four years. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We're talking about last night's RNC convention, taking your calls and emails, uh, what you think about uh, what went on last night, 
877-301-8970 is the phone number. BPR at WGBH.org um, is the email. You know, I want to read this email from Kevin because he's a Trump guy. He's been emailing us for a long time uh, uh, from New Hampshire. Here's what Kevin has to say. I'm not sure who could vote for Joe. What has he done in 40 years? He's been in Congress. Kamala has a track record does not jive with my values. Every city experienced in riots, unrest, or in Democrat-run cities. Uh, Democrats did not bring the best candidate or VP to the table. Have you looked at California lady, uh, lately? It's not about a husband and wife. I don't know what that means. I guess it's a reference to gay marriage. Or They allow homeless people to go to the bathroom in the city sidewalk. Check it out. My business has improved since Trump was elected. The company I work for has expanded. We brought back manufacturing from China all under President Trump. Um, and then he's complaining that we're uh, leaning too much against uh, Trump. Uh, it goes on a little bit more. But I did want to get to the job thing because that is a big thing that the president keeps insisting, uh, that he had the best economy ever and, and um, that, you know, that uh, millions of manufacturing jobs were shipped overseas and they came back under Trump. You know, the bulk of the expansion was under Barack Obama. Obviously, things are not very good with the economy right now. Uh, but when you look at the fact check um, on, the, on the job situation, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics says the United States has shed 257,000 manufacturing jobs while Trump has been in office. And he's been in office, what, for th- almost four years. Okay, but the 257 is more than the 205 manufacturing jobs lost over the entire eight years of the Obama administration. And this economist points out that manufacturing job growth is much more linked to cycles in the economy than the political party of the president. And he also talks about the, the number of manufacturing jobs in the United States sharply contracted during the Great Recession, 2008-2009, before beginning this gradual economy. But manufacturing employment began to level off in 2019 because of a global economic showdown and the trade war. So the idea that, that all these jobs have come back, uh, due respect, Kevin, is just, I mean, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, I suppose you could call them members of the deep state if you want, but they've been keeping numbers uh, quite accurately for quite uh, some time. So I think that's among the lies that the president wants you to um, believe. He's right about the unemployment rate being the lowest in in, in 50 years, absolutely, and that's particularly true for blacks and Hispanics. It's not true overall, though, for um, every demographic group, as he said. It's not true for men generally or women generally. Well, also, I mean, if you, and people say you shouldn't necessarily do this, but if you define the economy to some degree by the stock market, yes, the stock market has come back. So people who have what, a lot of people in the Trump administration, a lot of people what we saw on stage last night have, um, then this economy is working well for you because the stock market has rebounded. But in fairness, so have people's 401ks and 403bs. Uh, They have largely come back from the precipitous drop in March. Uh, So the administration is touting that as well. Correct. But as we know, uh, only half of Americans have money in the stock market, including in 401k. So for those 50%, yeah, that's great. If you're not in that 50%, uh, then... Obviously, you're in a crisis, people facing evictions and foreclosures, et cetera, et cetera. Jay in the car, thank you for calling. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. I would like to say um, my brother is living in Portland, Oregon right now, and um, he told me that every night he, um, his, his condo's totally on fire, burning up, you know, so he burns every night. And the only way that he um, survives is by getting near a federal building and painting himself bronze. So that they'll protect him, you know. So obviously, the, the his, whole town is going bad. I'm being completely he, sarcastic. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Because yeah, I was yeah. okay. No. I was going to say if it's burning every night, how could he stay there? No, he so goes, he goes, he goes, he goes to bed. He gets up. He goes to work. 
um, as far as he knows, there's like, you know, there's not much going on really, you know, it, it happens late at night and everything that I see on Twitter and, uh, you know, feeds that are out there from me following all the people that I don't like um, are all usually all the scenes of violence are scenes of police shooting grenades and, you know, gas bombs and stuff like it's not and, and, and a mattress on fire, you know, so it's not as crazy as everyone keeps making it look out to be. So I, I don't know. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. No. Uh, thank you very much for that. I mean, I think that that's basically what's there has absolutely been violence. There's absolutely been looting. And Portland was having these protests night after night after night. But the idea that uh, the Democrats, again, are just telling the cops not to do anything. Well, they did go in and shut down that. Um, uh, remember that? protest zone that was going on for days and days and days. Yep. I mean, the police eventually um, shut that down. So anyway, thank you for that call. Let's go to Heidi in, in Francistown. Hi, Heidi. Hi. Um, I'm so glad to see the two of you as hosts. I always enjoy it. When thank the you. two of you are hosts. But, um, thank you. We'll, t- we'll tell uh, that to I Jim, a- Heidi. We'll <laughs> relay that right away to Jim Brady. Don't tell that to Heidi, <laughs> Jim. Maybe he's, maybe he's listening. Never mind all that. I've already said that. Um, I, I am a, a strong Democrat, and um, uh, I'm surviving this week. Um, but I think that uh, what I learned from the convention this week is that the Democrats absolutely must set the record straight on the depressed economy. They can't let uh, the president get away with saying everything is wonderful because um, we all know how many people have lost their jobs. The farmers are in terrible trouble, and um, all that has to be set straight. And also, the Democrats have to be very clear about what Democrats do when the economy is in terrible shape, as it was in the 20s, as it was, it tanked a little under Reagan, it tanked again under George W. Bush, And what do the Democrats do uh, to revive the economy? And they have to make very clear and specifically what um, Democrats do, the kinds of programs that they set up that employ people. So um, that is my reaction. Okay. My thinking. Heidi, Heidi, thank you very much. I I appreciate the call. Jai, what do you think? Should we we end this segment with one more replay of Kimberly Kimberly Guilfoyle spontaneously combusting at the RNC last night? I don't know why, what it says about me that I cannot resist this. I just, I went deep down the Kimberly Guilfoyle rabbit hole this morning reading everything. I mean, I'm just, I don't, yeah. Is she mad at her ex-husband? Is that it? She uh, attacked yeah. California rather viciously. Who, of course, is Gavin Newsom, if people don't know. Yeah. Yeah, he is a And governor. now dating uh, Donald Trump Jr. Yeah, she's in dating case w- people don't know. Right, uh, I'm let- your resource for everything. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's wrap this up with one more uh, sound of Kimberly Guilfoyle from last night's RNC. President Trump believes in you. He emancipates and lifts you up to live your American dream. You are capable. You are qualified. You are powerful. And you have the ability to choose your life and determine your destiny. Don't let the Democrats take you for granted. Don't let them step on you. Don't let them destroy your families, your lives, and your future. Don't let them kill future generations because they told you and brainwashed you and fed you lies that you weren't good enough. 
See, aren't you glad you have the arts editor here? Because I can make the Avita comparison. I mean, you don't want to make Patty Lupone mad. I can tell you that. Oh, okay. Yeah. The Avita comparison is a great one. Other people talked about maybe she had too much Red Bull and the other one about the spontaneous combustion. I guess we've repeated that about a million times. But it was, you know, part of me feels guilty about this because, as I said before, women who speak loudly get criticized much more than men who speak loudly. Plenty of men shout. Uh, but there was just something unnerving about that last night, especially when she had no audience. Right, no audience and lifting the hands. It was yeah. It, there were there was more than just the voice happening here. I, w- I would think. All right, coming up, we'll, we'll get we'll get Trini's take on this too. Coming up, when it comes to dismissing protests about police brutality and racial injustice, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell all but gets down on bended knee to ask Colin Kaepernick for forgiveness. Sports Authority Trini Kuzneri joins us for that and more on eighty nine seven WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen's in for Jim Browdy. Joining us on the line to go over the latest headlines at the intersection of sports and society is Trini Kuznarek. She's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. Hello, Trini. Hello, Marjorie. Did you have a nice vacation last week? I had a lovely vacation. I had a lovely vacation. And um, uh, I, I'm certainly glad I got back in time to watch the Republican convention every night. It's put me in a very good mood. You, oh, you, I'm we, sure it has. <laughs> Uplifting, uplifting. Yes, very uplifting. But, but you know, let's start with something uplifting um, in, in sports. You know, Dan Shawns, you got a great piece talking about the welcome distraction of, you know, being able to see the Celtics and the Bruins. It, 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 tell us about uh, what Shaughnessy said. Yeah, I mean, and it's more right than just having sports back because sports have been back for a, for a little bit now. But Shaughnessy's point is that, you know, in this city of champions, in which uh, I think most sports fans here have become very accustomed, accustomed to um, winning, uh, their teams winning and winning titles and always being in contention. You know, now we have two winter sports teams in the Bruins and the Celtics. Um, playing meaningful games in August because of COVID, and both are right in the thick of another championship run. The Celtics swept the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of their postseason. They've advanced to take on the Toronto Raptors. That series begins on Thursday. And then you've got the Bruins. You've got a gentleman's sweep of the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, they have moved on to the second round against the Tampa Bay Lightning. And both, you know, while probably a bit of outside shots because, you know, the Bruins are without Tuka Rask and the Celtics are without Gordon Hayward and maybe they're not quite there yet. But both have an outside chance of making a true run at this shortened season title. And it's really captivating. Um, I think people are into it. Uh, you know, I can only go on, you know, the ratings that we get sent. But since the postseason started... Um, you know, ratings have been pretty good. Streaming numbers have been good for the Celtics. Um, people are watching. They are interested. And I just think it's nice to have some semblance of normalcy. Even if we're normally watching these postseason runs in, you know, late April, May, and into early June, and we're watching them now instead in August, September, and October, it just makes you feel a little bit like, okay, not everything is doom and gloom, and I don't have to watch the RNC every night if I don't want to, or the DNC, depending on which way you lean, though I was very into the DNC last week. Um, You know, you can flip on 
um, hockey or basketball and watch really fun, meaningful games. But but here's the collateral damage. We're going to be an entire region without sleep as we were just like, <laughs> I mean, if you're watching the RNC, you're not getting sleep because you're going to bed late. If you And then if all plays out, as everybody here hopes it will, the Bruins and the Celtics will have us watching up late every single night. Super late, right? So I think tonight the the Bruins tip off it's or tip off <laughs> the puck drops at seven o'clock, and so unless there's you know a lot of extra periods um, and they have to go into overtime play, I mean you know two and a half hours, two hours and fifteen minutes, you're done with the hockey game. The Celtics, I believe, play at six thirty p.m. Pre-game begins at five thirty on NBC Sports Boston <laughs> on Thursday. Um, you know, six thirty to nine o'clock. I mean, I suppose if you want to then stay up and watch and just get your, like, blood pressure going and watch the RNC, you could. But if you're like me, <laughs> you'll watch the Celtics play the Raptors and then you'll go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is you could do this every night because we'll, we'll have it's going that far that we'll have something every single night to look there forward to. There is. Shaughnessy laid it out. Like, every single night starting tonight, you can either watch the Bruins or the Celtics. I think there's one day. I'd have to go back and look at this column. Uh, there's one day where they overlap. Like, yeah, like Sunday – I watch the Celtics in the afternoon and watch the Bruins at night, but it's great. And pretty soon guys, if these players, if this, if these teams go deep into the respective postseasons, we could also have the Patriots every Sunday <laughs> That's or right. Monday or Thursday to watch, because as it's going right now in the NFL, things are going well, you know, training camps are progressing. Um, there really haven't been any positive tests. Now they haven't traveled yet, but we could be like, full sports mode again, you know, by early September. Well, before we get to the NFL, I wanted to talk about Bob Holler, who's a great reporter for the Boston yeah. Globe, um, did this great survey of colleges, 112 colleges, universities all around New England, and found that only five of those 112 employ a black athletic director. Just one of the region's 15 Division One athletic departments has a black leader, and that's Marcus Blossom at Holy Cross. And he focused the story or started the story um, on the story of a guy, Charlie Titus, who had been uh, chosen as UMass first athletic director yeah. back in 1980. And he just retired. He said in all those years, 1980 to now, that's, what is that? I'm bad at math. That's 40 years. 40, that's 40 years. years. Titus could count on one hand the number of black men and women running intercollegiate athletic departments anywhere in New England. So what'd you make of this? It was really shocking to me to read. And even beyond the athletic directors, if you go down a couple of more paragraphs in that Holer article, he talks about of the 23 Division I and Division II football teams in New England, none is led by a black head coach. None. Wow. In all, there are 58 collegiate programs in the New England area, and only two are led by black head coaches, and that's Division Three Bates College in Maine and the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in Connecticut. And to me, what struck me, Marjorie, the, you know, the, the story or the anecdote, however, you know, we want to talk about it. When BC lost uh, Martin Jarman to UCLA to be their new um, athletic director, and, and uh, Martin is, an, is a black man, um, they interviewed three people for that position, um, two of, one of whom was black, Alan Green. And the guy who ended up getting it is Ryan Bamford. Um, he was a senior associate AD at Georgia Tech. But when you go deeper into the story, um, Bamford 
had the reason they sort of went with Bamford is that his dad, Steve, was athletic director at Plymouth State for 13 years. He had deep roots in New England collegiate sports. He was at, you know, the athletic administrations at, in the, at Plymouth State in the ECAC. And it was like building this solid resume on the name, uh, you know, not to say that Ryan isn't qualified. I don't want to take anything away from what he's accomplished or what he's done. But part of that success and part of him climbing that ladder was the name of his father and the reputation of his father. And so when they brought him in, um, you know, at, at, U, at UMass Amherst, um, it, it, they had an opportunity to hire um, someone else who was a minority who was just as qualified, but they went with a guy with pedigree, right? And that, to me, is the most glaring example of how this sort of institutionalized racism persists, right? If you don't have minority individuals, um, black individuals in positions of power, then they cannot create a legacy. They cannot create a system in which they bring in people, other people of color to lead programs. They, they can't bring in other people who look like them and who had a similar upbringing as them in order to fill those positions. And if you go deeper into the story, you know, it talks about that, that same sort of um, um, anecdote. He talks about how, you know, UMass hiring Bamford and he had this, you know, opportunity. He hired 12 head coaches, only one of whom is black the track and field cross country coach. And he's the only black coach among UMass Amherst 16 head coaches. Sorry, I earlier said that it was, this was at BC. This is at UMass Amherst. Um, so you look at that and you see that we, you know, it's a little bit of human nature, right? To go with what you're familiar with, to hire with whom you're familiar with. Um, and if you don't have those ties to other communities, then it's really hard to put those people in positions of power And I just look at that as a prime example and the prime reason of privilege and name getting you somewhere that you need to go. And that's why it is so important to put diverse people in these positions so that it's it's like a tree. Right. You put a root down and then everything else grows from that. Well, Trinity, um, and you can't grow from it if, if, if you don't plant the seed. Something I think is really significant here. I mean, first of all, in his in this really great piece, um, Holler writes about Charlie Titus, again, the UMass Boston first athletic director, saying that he's watched universities that profit from the performances of black student athletes passed over yeah. qualified black candidates. Yeah. We've been talking with Shirley Leung a lot about this uh, as she looks at the legal community, as she looks at the business community. And quite frequently, you see the explanation, well, we couldn't find qualified black black candidates or or qualified candidates of color. In some cases, there is an element of truth to that. This is why we're, we're, we're so focused on systemic racism now. How do you create more opportunity? But that argument cannot be made in the sports realm, especially when we saw yeah. what Washington just did, the Washington team with its new president. I mean, this is an industry that is rife with people of color who who absorb what the industry is. Right. I mean, you look just at the, you know, we can look at the NFL, right? Um, How many black men go from being, you know, players? We'll just use the Patriots as an an example. You know, two guys I'm really familiar with. I worked with at NBC Sports Boston and Gerard Mayo and Troy Brown. You know, both of these guys played under Bill Belichick. They're now coaching under Bill Belichick. The question is, will they get an opportunity to lead a team? Now, Brian Flores did. Uh, he went down to the Miami Dolphins um, from from Bill Belichick's 
tree. But when you look at the NFL, there are so few black head coaches. And then you also look at, oh, and I'm blanking on his name. I think it's Eric. I know his first name is Eric, and I'm blanking on his last name. He's the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, here's a guy who has helped engineer Patrick Mahomes and one of the yeah. you know, best offenses we've seen in a while. And yet here's a guy who has interviewed countless times for head coaching jobs. And the excuse they use with him is, well, he doesn't call the plays. Andy Reid, the head coach, calls the plays. But guys like Doug Peterson, who also coached Andy Reid and didn't call plays, but is a former white quarterback, got those jobs that Eric isn't getting. And I'm sorry that I'm blanking on his last name. I That's feel like okay. And it's, I think it starts with a B and I just don't want to mess it up, but I, you know, I could picture him in my head, but again, it's like, there are these qualifications and we see this, you know, whether you're a woman, whether you're a black man, a, you know, a person of color, indigenous, we see this all the time that there are qualifications you have to hit in order for someone to take you seriously. If you fall into that category that just frankly are not there if you fall into the category of being a white male. And I don't fault anyone for taking advantage of those opportunities. I certainly don't think that they're less qualified or that a white man doesn't deserve the job that he gets. But we do need to look at why we hold people to different standards and why we can't seem to lift up different voices. Like what is holding us back from allowing people who don't look like what we've typically thought of when we think of a boardroom or a courtroom or a sideline of a, of a football or basketball game, what needs to happen that that becomes a more diverse place? And it doesn't plateau, right? It doesn't stop it at an assistant coach or a coordinator. It, you know, it rises the ranks to general manager, athletic director, team president, um, because, you know, I, I've said this on the show before and, you know, I think we've all heard this, this phrase used, if you can't see it, it's hard to be it. You have yeah. to see that yeah. something is possible in order to know that it is attainable. We're talking to Trini Kuzniak from NBC Sports. Trini, um, what is going on with the NFL? They had all these positive, uh, likely positive, yeah. false positives over the weekend. Everybody was in a panic and now it turns out that they weren't. Positive yes, yeah, so 77 players in the NFL test what they thought was tested positive for coronavirus. And, you know, they've been doing daily testing um, every day. These guys get tested and a number of the teams have been using a lab in New Jersey. And I think the teams that were hit the hardest were the Bears, the Vikings, and there might have been one other um, that had like 10 or nine players have to sit out practice. Um, so. All these teams took the right precautions. Some canceled practice, some moved forward, like the Buffalo Bills, I think, moved forward, but kept the guys who tested positive at home. Um, and so it ends, ended up, they ended up finding out that there was a contaminant in the samples at, that they just didn't handle them properly at this lab in New Jersey that the NFL has been using. And all of those 77 tests were false positives. So you can look at this. We, we, we played this game last night at the end of our show. Is it good news or bad news that, they, that there were 77 false positives? And I actually look at it as good news because, one, it means those guys aren't, haven't been exposed and, and they're, they don't have COVID-19. So they're healthy. That's the most important thing. But, two, much better for this to happen in the second week of training camp than, let's say, this Saturday before kickoff on September 12th. You know, the NFL kicks off on September 10th with like that marquee Thursday night game. But then the, the, the bulk of the schedule begins on Sunday, September 13th. 
So could you imagine if this happened? Like, I think now that lab in New Jersey, the NFL, they are going to be much more diligent and making sure and really holding that lab, you know, their feet to the fire to make sure that an egregious mistake doesn't happen like this again, because it could, if this had happened in season, I mean, you're taking guys off practice squads and you're, you know, who knows? What if it's your starting quarterback? What if it's Cam Newton? What if it's Tom Brady and they're not actually positive and then you can't start a game because that lab screwed it up? So it is, it could be a big problem, but I, you know, I, I think it's better to happen. I think the timing of it was like, okay, hopefully we figured it out. We figured out how that this doesn't happen again. But I think the larger story is that players aren't testing positive. And I think they've only had six like coaches slash personnel test positive in the NFL. So whatever precautions the NFL is taking and the way that the players and the coaches and the team personnel and team officials are handling themselves, they are doing it right because so far, and it's, you know, again, it's only been about four weeks since teams have really been back at the facility, but four weeks is a fair amount of time to have very, very, they have had well under 1% positives, even as guys were coming in camp, into camp. And I just think that speaks volumes for when you take the right precautions, you can move forward with things. We're talking to Trenny Trenny Kuznarek. Trenny, a huge about face from Roger Goodell uh, about Colin Kaepernick. We know how the NFL responded uh, when he first started taking a knee in protest and the the huge backlash, uh, what it did to Kaepernick's career. Uh, Goodell was not standing by him, but he has completely changed his tune. We have a little bit of sound from this. We'll ask you on the other side uh, how this has come about and what he's saying now. But uh, here in this conversation, Roger Goodell uh, expresses regret that the NFL hadn't listened to Kaepernick earlier. Well, I, the first thing I'd say is I wish we had listened earlier, uh, Cap, to what you were kneeling about and what you were trying to bring attention to. Uh, we had invited him in several times to have the conversation, to have the dialogue. Mm-hmm. I wish we had the benefit of that. Yeah, We never did. Um, and, you know, we would have benefited from that. Yeah. Absolutely. Obviously, very belated, but what do we see happening here, Trenny? Okay, so here's my thing, Jared. Like, I don't know that he's done a total 180. Like, that was like, I'm really sorry for hurting your feelings, but you were acting like a jerk, so I hurt your feelings back. Because what he's basically saying there is, well, I really would have loved to have listened to Colin Kaepernick. And, hey, we invited him in to talk. We, we said he could come in and tell the story, but, you know, unfortunately, we didn't have that opportunity, which is basically saying... We told Kaepernick to come in and talk to us, but he chose not to. So what exactly were we supposed to do? Like, like if I look at this as, did you, if you were Colin Kaepernick and the way that you reacted to his actions, I don't know that I would trust that the NFL's intentions were pure or good or that they were going to listen to me. Like, I would have preferred Roger Goodell to just say, you know what? We screwed up from the jump. We did not make it clear that we really wanted to. And maybe at that time, we were not ready to listen. And we did not create an environment in which our players felt comfortable talking to us about the issues. And we are going to change that. That, to me, is an evolved thinking. But this, to me, is like an empty, another like empty. It's like, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry if I offended you. Like that to me is what this is about. Like the headline is a little misleading because he follows up with, well, we asked him, but you know, he didn't come in. What am I supposed to do? I I wish I could have had the opportunity, but he didn't want to talk to us. It's like putting the blame back on Colin Kaepernick. Or maybe I'm just cynical, but that's how I interpreted it. Maybe I just hate Roger Goodell. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I guess there are a lot of people who aren't that fond of him, aren't they? But he's got he's got a great he's got yeah, a great gig yeah, for not, himself. I wouldn't say that. He, yeah, I wouldn't say that he's like loved around the Boston area <laughs> post Deflategate. I just I I don't know. Maybe it's like the like the twenty years of like therapy that I've gone through. But I really I look at that. I heard that and I thought again. This is like. You know, when you hurt, like they always say to you, when you apologize, just apologize for your actions. Right. Don't turn it around and make an excuse for why. Well, I, I, I mean, I really didn't mean to do that. But that's the, to me that that reeks of a I'm really sorry, comma, but. All right. I'll, I'll amend to say Roger Goodell has done a full five degrees. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's like, right. He, he, well, like forget the one eight. Like, he's ticked from like high noon to like... <laughs> 1203 like maybe he's sort of starting to get it but he's still but he's still so worried about like i think and i think this is this is getting off the sports topic but i think like an issue in our larger society is we're all so afraid to admit that maybe we acted like racist jerks even if we're not racist it's the core and we don't think of ourselves that way like it's not that hard to look at yourself and say wow i really acted like a jerk and i'm gonna not do that again well we'll have to leave okay, it at that but, yeah, this Thanks. is the time to say that <laughs> <laughs> see you later trenny trenny kuzneric joins bye, us every guys. week bye uh, she's an anchor and reporter for nbc sports boston and a bpr con- contributor coming up signed with ink sealed not with scotch tape and hopefully delivered now that early voting is underway and mail-in voting in massachusetts is the law of the land state senator becca roush joins us for the ultimate mail-in voting explainer i'm excited she's next 89.7 wgbh boston public radio Ahead on Boston Public Radio, in 2020, you won't have to hit the polls to cast a ballot. Under an ambitious new initiative, voters in Massachusetts should have received applications for mail-in ballots. But while the concept appears straightforward, it's left many wondering if and how the process even works. Some still have not received their applications. Several candidates have filed a lawsuit demanding that the period to count ballots be extended. Joining us to answer your calls and your emails about everything you want to know about mail-in voting will be State Senator Becca Rausch. I'm Jared Bowen filling in for Jim Browdy. So much for avoiding doom and gloom. Last night's Republican National Convention kicked off with a message from former Fox News host Kimberly Guilfoyle that the Democrats will destroy the United States if Joe Biden is elected president. Running as an outsider in 2016, Trump in this 2020 convention is making one thing clear. It's his party now. Later, we'll have the full analysis of RNC night one when we're joined by CNN's John King. That and more ahead on Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I am Marjorie Egan. Jim Browdy has the week off. Joining me as a co-host this week is WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen. Hello again, Jared. Hello again, Marjorie. Uh, very nice day today compared to yesterday when we lost Zoom, like much of America, which we're going to talk about later in the show. Much yes. calmer? That was a little stressful. Yes, it's a lot calmer. <laughs> I had to lie down after the show yesterday. <laughs> Very stressful day. That and then the RNC last night. But anyway, uh, State Senator Becca Rush has been a leading voice in the Senate on vote by mail legislation. Now that it's the law of the land, she joins us on the line to talk through what this entails, particularly with early voting underway and the United States Postal Service under siege. Senator Rush, thanks for coming back again to Boston Public Radio. We appreciate it. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. 
So let me give everybody the number and the email. The number is 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. You can call the senator with your questions. You can email at bpr at wgbh.org. So, Senator, let's, let's start. Before we get to what the deal is in Massachusetts and, and, and Jared's travails, which you'll, which you'll detail, yeah. what is going on um, nationally? We had the Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, insisting that everything is fine during this long grilling up on Capitol Hill. Uh, but um, it doesn't sound like everything is fine. Well, I think we've got, you know, an inquiry and a lawsuit coming from various attorneys general around the country, including our, our very own, you know, best lawyer of the people, Maura Healy, um, to really get to the bottom of that. Um, so we'll have to see how that unfolds. I think the, the thing is that's really, you know, Deeply disappointing, um, to put it mildly, is the uh, language that we're hearing from Mr. Trump at this particular moment, um, which honestly is voter suppression any way you slice it. Um, it is just inaccurate, right? Voting by mail has been a tried and true process for over 150 years. It dates all the way back to the Civil War, um, and we've had plenty of success with it. Um, and I really just encourage everybody to uh, you know, pick, pick the option that is the best voting option for you. We made sure right here in Massachusetts to provide both vote by mail and in-person voting. Um, and so really just you know, voting, your vote is your voice. Um, I voted by mail and uh, I know lots and lots and lots of other people have voted by mail. I've seen, um, I've certainly seen bumps in the implementation here, but I've also seen great successes, including people who say they've, you know, they've, sent in their application, the ballot was sent, they received their ballot, you know, within days after it being sent, which is a perfectly normal amount of time for, you know, mail to take to arrive from one place to another, um, sent it back and it was received and processed and accepted also within just a matter of a couple of days. Okay, well, we're, I, I don't think that that has been a, a universal experience by any stretch, but before True. we get to what's going on in Massachusetts, uh, you know, I don't understand how things can be fine uh, when within days of his appointment in May, uh, as they testified yesterday up at, at when, on, in these hearings, he cut hours at post offices around the country, denied overtime to mail clerks and carriers, said carriers should leave mail behind. We had uh, Congressman Steve Lynch, who got into a, a kind of a testy back and forth with joy yesterday, pointing out that they ran into the chief uh, central post office in Boston, took out six fast sorting machines, and DeJoyce says he has no intention of putting them back. So I I don't see how things can be fine. And we'll get to Jared's story and other people's stories about the mail being unbelievably slow all summer long Mm -hmm. in Massachusetts. You know what I'm saying? It's not fine. Yeah, yep. Yeah, it's it's inconsistent for sure. Um, And this is why I've been saying since the very beginning that, you know, the second you got your application send it back. The second you get your ballot, send it back or go and drop it off. Um, You know, at at this point where we are literally one week away from the primary day at this point, uh, right, ballots are due back um, by 8 p.m. one week from today. Um, If it were me submitting my ballot at this stage of the game, I would, uh, you know, take a quick trip over to town hall and drop it off in the ballot box. Okay, so. um, you know, it, it is it is disappointing to put it as mildly as I possibly can um, that we are seeing these kinds of voter suppression efforts from our federal government in one of the most critical, if not the most critical election cycle um, in our lifetime. 
All right. Okay, I Jan, have been choking at the bit here <laughs> because this is my experience. And I've heard from all like, – I've been talking about it. I've been giving nearly daily updates for the last almost month, which is why this is so significant. Uh, and so people have emailed me. They've tweeted. So here's my story. So basically, like a lot of people, I won't be in town on Election Day because it is before Labor Day. Uh, so you know that, that in itself is a challenge. So I got my, my request for the ballot in the mail. I did wait a couple days, but then I tried to get it out immediately, uh, almost immediately. Uh, that was about four weeks ago. I just finally got my ballot yesterday in the mail. So and a lot of people have also written me and said, well, you should go online. You should go to the state, state tracker. I did that. It didn't show up. So I called Secretary Galvin's office. They said you have to call the city of Boston because this is where you live. This is where you vote. So I called City Hall. Both were very efficient in their calls. Both were very helpful. Uh, but they told me that it essentially took uh, almost about 10 days, it seems, to get to City Hall. It took a while to process. It took another week for City Hall to mail the ballot back to me. Again, I live in Boston. Why did it take an entire week? for this to get to me and I only got it yesterday as you say which is now sitting in my bag with me because I'm not going to put it back in the mail uh, but this yeah. is the condition of a lot of people as I've just heard anecdotally through social media or people who've written us on the show I mean that's got to be very concerning that it's, this hasn't gone that efficiently um, I, it is it is concerning um, I, I think we're seeing a lot of things contribute to the delays um, you know, and, and again, I've seen a lot of people get um, get you know, have things run perfectly smoothly and a lot of people with stories like yours where it's not running smoothly. Um, you know, and I, I think it's important to mention at this moment that even the applications to submit to get a mail in ballot aren't due until tomorrow. Uh, right. So, so if you have not yet applied for a vote by mail ballot. You can still do that, right? You can still. You, at this point, you're definitely not mailing that. You're, um, you're sending an email to your town clerk, which must include a signature, or you're taking that application postcard or downloading it from the website um, and hand delivering it to the clerk, um, whether, you know, in Boston or anywhere, whoever your local clerk is, um, because it certainly won't get there in time otherwise. But those applications are not due until 5 p.m. tomorrow. Um, so that means, you know, and that's something that we wanted to, to do from a legislative perspective to make sure that as many people who wanted to get a mail-in ballot could do so. Um, that does I mean that you're, if you're getting your ballot at this stage of the game, um, you're, you're probably going to drop it off in person. Um, but, but again, you know, our clerks are processing thousands. I, I spoke with one local clerk who said, you know, if we were – if we, what we are learning from this for sure is that when you put ballots in people's hands, they use them. Um, and we have been talking about, you know, low voter turnout for as long as I can remember and before that for sure. Um, and when we're in a moment where access to elections and, and votes, just vote, the act of voting is so, so critically important, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing success, right? We're seeing people get apply for mail-in ballots, use mail-in ballots, and that is in turn um, increasing turnout, uh, which is which is great for democracy. Um, but we have had a lot of things contribute to the delays. Um, obviously, we have an issue, <laughs> to put it lightly, with the U.S. Postal Service. Um, you know, we've had a number of other delays as well. Um, you know, it's part of why I was pushing for the issuance of ballots generally without having to do the, the first back and forth 
um, with the application, um, but there were a number of logistical um, hurdles, let's say, that, that precluded that option. Um, you know, but we've, even the, the clerks couldn't even start really efficiently processing those uh, mail-in ballot applications for weeks after the first well, postcards were sent out because the back-end processing system wasn't updated. So yeah, well, were, let's go back to that in just a, delays, yeah. just a moment. I want to remind people of our number, first of all, for people who have questions. I probably covered a lot of ground with my own story, but our number is 877-301-8970. Again, 877-301-8970. So let me just ask you, as a practical point, what I do now. You mentioned that it should be delivered in person. Secretary Galvin has also said yep. publicly at this point in the game, people should be delivering their ballots in person. What does that mean? Does that mean Dropbox? Does that mean where you voted? Walk people through how they should hand deliver at this point and how long they can hand deliver. You can hand deliver right up until 8 p.m. on the day of the election. So 8 p.m. next week. So you've got plenty of time, um, even if you're heading out of town and, and you're not limited to business hours because um, the drop boxes are outside. In fact, I've been getting pictures of drop boxes from all across the Commonwealth, uh, particularly within my own district. Um, you know, I, I live in Needham. The drop box for the ballot is massive and red. They actually call it Big Red, um, <laughs> like the old chewing gum. Um, <laughs> it's this big red box. Um, and it says, put your ballots here. And it's right outside of town hall. And you just take your ballot. And how do you, how do you, There's no how contact. Do you, how do you find out where it is in your, in your individual town, Senator? Yeah, you can go to your local clerk's website. Um, and if it's not, you know, on the website, you can always call your local clerk and get So call the local there. town clerk and ask or check on the website. Okay. I'm sorry I interrupted. Yep. Go ahead. And, no, no, it's fine. And, and in, you know, in, in places like Boston, um, there might be several drop boxes. I, I don't know offhand, um, but you can, you know, you can check that out. I, I, I hope that in a place like Boston, uh, where you have so, you know, such ground to cover, um, that there would be a couple of ballot drop boxes. Um, so you can, you know, you can go anytime, drop it off. And, you know, it's just like putting a piece of mail into the mailbox, except you're putting a ballot into the ballot drop box. All right. Well, I have dominated enough of this conversation with my story. So let's go to our callers. Let's start with Sally calling from Cape Cod. Hi, Sally. Hi. Uh, I just came back from early voting in Barnesville. I'm 65 and I was concerned about whether to do it in person or go to the polls or what I was going to do. But I decided to do early voting. It was safe. It was easy. It was efficient. Uh, and I got to watch them seal my ballot with glue and put it in my precinct. So I think that that is a great solution rather than worrying about the mail. I'm just, I'm just too concerned that gremlins out there that are trying to change history instead of the way I want to change history and that's to get Trump out. You know, thank you very much for that call, Sally. I'd like to point out, I just looked up Boston because you have a list from Secretary Galvin's website and there's one, unless they've, they've goofed this up, and I'm happy to be corrected if somebody knows better, but the one drop box in Boston is at one city hall square. Could not be a more inconvenient place to stop off. There's no place to park. You're right in the middle of traffic, even though there's less traffic now. So um, uh, the mailing address, which is too late to mail for the primary, obviously. But, uh, Senator, that's pretty disgraceful. One place in all of Boston? And is it city hall square? Yeah, I'd have to have a conversation with the with the Boston election officials. Um, yeah. And 
you know, that's, that's also, I, I, this is something my office is doing and I've been really dedicated to doing is tracking all these, uh, what I'm calling bumps in the road of implementation um, that we can try to, you know, do better for the general election. Uh, yeah, you know, the biggest the, the city in the state. <laughs> yeah, and I saw this, when I went online yesterday, I saw the same thing, just one. Yeah, I guess what you'd have to do is you have to drive down to City Hall Square, hope the traffic isn't bad, have somebody, your passenger seat, run out to the drop box because you're not going to be able to park down there unless you want to pay $40, and then run back to your car. Wow, the, the elections department in Boston, I think, might do a better job to accommodate all the tens of thousands of voters here. Anyway, our number is 877-301-8970. This is from, um, oh, this is a question about someone who's suspicious about... uh, Hey, hey Marjorie, before before you go to that question, I just want to also say that because we're now in the early voting period, and and thank you to Sally for the comment, um, you can also drop off your, I believe that you can drop off your ballot at um, early voting locations. Um, okay. So I believe that I, I'm pretty sure that Boston has several early voting locations. Again, I don't have that called up right in front of me, um, but you know I, I've, I've seen several different locations um, on social media. You know, I, I'm not part of the Boston legislative delegation, so I've been yep. focusing on my district. Um, We're not. I'm not blaming you, I, Senator. I'm not blaming you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, <laughs> no, I know you're not. I, I'm just saying for people who live in Boston, including Jared, um, you might want to, you know. Uh, drop it off at one of those early voting locations. And that would be during business hours, correct? Uh, yes. If you want to drop it off with a with a uh, person at an early voting location, then the early voting location has to be open. Um, so, yeah. Okay, Positive Robert. Negative to all options. <laughs> Robert is emailing. He wants to know how does Mass validate the person who signed the ballot as the person who's registered? I've heard stories where people have received ballots for dead relatives. What prevents someone from voting and signing the dead relative's name uh, and uh, and and sending it back in? That's from Bob in Oklahoma, actually. Hi, Bob. Oh, in Oklahoma. Well, hello, Bob yes. from Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Massachusetts has an affidavit on the experience. Well, actually, there, there are a couple of envelopes that you get when you cast a mail-in ballot. You get the, you know, the envelope that comes in, which you then toss in the recycle bin. But then in, inside the packet, you have the envelope that you have to sign and then the exterior envelope. Um, and on the envelope that you need to sign um, is an affidavit that says explicitly that committing voter fraud is a very serious um, criminal offense and has very serious penalties. Um, and also we've seen, you know, study after study after study um, that just shows that voter fraud is really not a thing. Um, and so we, we have we do have a certification and an affidavit process um, where you have to sign that envelope and your ballot will be rejected if you do not sign that envelope. Um, the penalties are very clearly stated right on the envelope. Um, and again, voter fraud, um, it's just it's just proven time and again that that voter fraud is is really just um, not a significant concern here. Um, And in fact, in fact, uh, I think of the Brennan Institute did a study that said it's more likely for an American to be struck by lightning than it is to see an incident of of, um, male voting fraud. Now, Ann just emailed uh, Senator Roush and said that lists of early voting locations are available at mass.gov. I take her at her word. She says that they're available at uh, these uh, sites all around Boston, so people can look up there. Uh, and I hope yep, she's correct. True. Marjorie, and, I can chime in. Yep. Our, our producers just told us the, those inc- uh, locations in Boston include the BPL, East Boston High School Gym, 
the Condon School. Uh, and yes, it's all on the website. So we can blame Bill Galvin for not making this clear on his printout. Is that the person well, we want well. to blame here? <laughs> Secretary of State? I don't know. Um, Anne said, this is, a little, this is a little troubling. Annie said she sent in her ballot, not application, three weeks ago and last night did a tracking search for my ballot and I've received a message stating no records found. That's what I experienced. Okay, so if, she, if this continues up until September 1st, can she just go vote September 1st? In person? Yes. Uh, well, it depends. Um, it, if, the ball- if there's no record of the ballot being cast, right? When you take your ballot and you put it in the Dropbox or you put it in the mail um, and, and it's received by the clerk, um, that is considered casting your ballot. So once you've, right, like I voted, my ballot is accepted, um, I'm done. I can't show up to the polls and try to vote again, right? That, yep. that absolutely will not happen. Um, but if your ballot... You know, I would. I think the last time, Marjorie, that we were talking, you know, if your dog eats your ballot or your kid spills lemonade on it or whatever, you can get a replacement. Or if it, if you end up not using it, yeah, um, you know, if it, then you can go and vote in person. Let me just add, you, lots of people are listening. I just got a, a text from someone uh, within the city who said you can also go to Boston.gov again if you live in the city to find uh, places to for early voting or even see a picture of the big – it's not big red, but you can see the very colorful <laughs> uh, vote-by-mail box. Uh, let's go to our next caller, Shirley from Brighton. Hi, Shirley. Hi. Uh, I think you answered my question. I just wanted to know, I sent my application for a ballot a month ago. They said they mailed it a week ago. I haven't received it. I want to just go vote now, early voting. Can I? Yeah. Uh, great question, Shirley. Yeah. Thank hi, you for Shirley. that call. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. You, hi, Shirley. You absolutely can go and vote in person if your if and hopefully when your ballot does show up just don't use it um and you can go and vote in person no problem uh thank you very much um, for that you know um <laughs> oh go ahead senator go ahead no i just want to say for for people we're talking a lot about boston locations yeah um but there are you know this information is for is available for every municipality throughout the commonwealth and if you go to becca roush ma.com slash 2020 elections um, I've put explainer videos, details, useful links to the tracker and where you can find your voting locations. All of that is available on that website, BeccaRauschMA.com slash 2020 elections. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear all the information from, about Boston coming in um, and, and uh, also want to provide the resource for folks who live in other municipalities. That's right. You are from Needham. Let's make that clear. You're not, you're not, True. You're not, you're not from Boston. <laughs> you know, uh, we're talking with uh, uh, State Senator Becca Rausch, a Democrat, as I just said, from Needham. You know, a lot of people have argued, I think there's a SJC is going to hear this case about extending the date by which, with the September 1st primary so close, votes can be counted. What's the deal there? Um, I believe the, the SJC actually heard arguments about that by a telephone conference yesterday. Um, so we will see what those you know, results end up, you know, what the SJC ends up deciding. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think the common goal here is, is to ensure that voters can safely cast their ballots and have their votes counted. Um, you know, and so for me, as, as the leading champion of voting by mail and elections access, and you know, been really out in front on this issue, um, I think the best thing that I can do is just to continue to disseminate accurate information to voters like we're doing today um, that will help voters achieve that goal. Um, you know, and, and I have to say, I think the real issue here 
is that our primary date is so very late. Our yeah. primary date, the way our, our laws are set up, our primary date is the very last in the entire country. <laughs> we are dead last. Um, and the way our statute is written about when we hold our primary election, we only have a two-week window to move it. Um, you know, and, and I, uh, I spoke about this when we moved the primary date this year because our initially, according to our statutory law, our primary date wasn't supposed to be until the 15th. Um, and in order to comply with federal law, we have to have those ballots in the, it being sent out to you know, Americans living overseas by the 19th, which is just woefully insufficient amounts of time. So I actually filed a bill at the beginning of the session, and, and as I've had more and more conversations about this, people have been making this proposal for decades, um, you know, that we move our primary date from seven weeks in advance of the general, which is, again, dead last in the nation, to um, sometime in the late spring period, um, which is where more than half the nation holds their traditional primaries like we have. Um, so I filed a bill, you know, back at the beginning of the session in last January to move the primary to the second Tuesday in June. Um, and then we wouldn't have you know, the various complicating issues that are coming up um, in the context of this lawsuit, right? You, we would easily be able to have 10 days afterward to receive and process the um, mail-in ballots because we wouldn't be so close to the general. So, Senator, in, uh, in advance of your coming on for the last couple of days, we've been inviting people to submit emails. Here's another. Um, it would help to know why a mail-in ballot might be rejected in Massachusetts. For example, I've heard that in some states, if the ballot is sealed with scotch tape, it's rejected. Is there some sort of verification? Uh, I think you've addressed that. What if the ballot is mismarked? Um, I, I think we've we've heard reports of ballots being rejected. Um, this is me interjecting now that we've heard ballots being rejected in other parts of the country for stray marks? How does it work here? Um, so even if you were voting in person, if you like, you know, drew a smiley face on your ballot, it would still not process. <laughs> um, so stray marks could be an issue. You want to be careful to fill out your ballot correctly. But that, that's, again, that's the same whether you're voting um, by mail or voting in person. Um, so the real issue, I think, where ballots could run into trouble is not whether you, you know, lick the envelope or use scotch tape, but instead if you if you fail to sign that affidavit in that envelope. Um, so make sure you sign it. Make sure you use um, black ink, right, a black pen. Um, I think the instructions say pencil is also acceptable, but I, I, I'm not, I don't think I even have a black pencil. So I used a black pen um, to fill out that ballot and make sure you follow the instructions or you complete the ballot correctly, um, right, don't you know, don't put any stray marks on it, fill it out properly, stick it in that um, um, interior ballot envelope, make sure you, that you sign it. Uh, that signature is really, really important. And then, um, and then put it in the exterior envelope and either mail it, you know, or drop it off. Another quick question. Uh, this is somebody who's been tracking their ballot online. Does it, uh, uh, I'm not sure what it means that my ballot was quote unquote, accepted. Does it just mean that the envelope containing the ballot has been received or does it mean that it has also passed some screening on to mean that the ballot has actually been quote unquote cast? Yeah. If your status on the tracker says your ballot is accepted, you're done. Your ballot is in. Your vote has been counted. Congratulations. And okay. thank you for voting. Richie and Quincy, thank you for calling. Thanks for taking my call. I've returned my ballot for the primary election already. I'm wondering if I need to apply again for a mail-in ballot for the general election, or will I automatically get one? Yes, great question, Richie. What's the so, deal? Um, it de- 
It depends. This is a great question. Thank you so much for asking. Um, it depends on how you submitted your application. So on the application, um, there were three different uh, boxes that you could check for which elections you want to uh, vote by mail in. Um, you could check a box just for the primary, you could check a box just for the general, or you could check a box for both. I checked for both. Um, if you, like me, also checked the, the box for both elections, um, then you do not need to reapply. Your ballot for the general election will come. If you only applied for the primary, um, then you should actually, uh, according to the law that, that the legislature passed and the governor signed, you should be getting another application form um, in mid-September, right around the 15th, uh, to apply again to vote by mail um, in the general election. But if you check that box for both elections, it should be all set. You know, Senator Ross, Jackie wants to know why birth years are printed next to your full legal names on the outside of the prepaid return envelope. She's concerned about security risks. Is she correct? And if so, why would, would people, why would they do this? Um, I, birth year is printed on, I, I only remember seeing my address on the mailing envelope. Yeah. Um, but I could be wrong about that. I would have to look into it. I, I mean, age, right, obviously is a uh, qualifier for being able to vote. Yeah. Um, so, so that's relevant information. Um, but at least on my return envelope, I remember only seeing my address, my name and address, which would you know go on the outside of any mailing envelope. Okay. We have a lot of Bostonians calling in to say that uh, that uh, I shouldn't criticize the, the drop boxes, that there's a lot of drop boxes you can <laughs> all around all around Boston. I think that in fairness to the Secretary of State, this may have been an older version that I got, and it wasn't the... Uh, no, but, but as I said, I did the same thing yesterday. I saw the same information as you, so that I'm glad the, that we're correcting oh, this. And, okay. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, I saw the same thing. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, somebody I know uh, within the city texted me and said, go to boston.gov. Yeah. You'll find more information there. Okay. So the Secretary of State's office is still uh, perhaps behind then? Is that what you're saying, Jared? I guess so. Okay. Uh, do we have time for we have we have time for a real, real quick one because uh, we're almost out of time. Anne in Boston, you just have a few seconds. What's your question real quick? Hi. My question is about signatures and how signatures are validated. I've heard in other parts of the country the ballots are disqualified if the signature is not perfect? And how are you validating the signatures? And I'm particularly concerned about millennials who never write the signature the same way twice. So, Oh, that's a, that's a great question, too. Uh, what do you think, Senator Rausch? Uh, so again, we've been uh, using various forms of um, m voting by mail uh, through absentee voting dating back to the Civil War. Um, some states implement a signature verification process. Massachusetts has never done that. Um, and so if you are signing that envelope, again, you're signing a, a sworn legal affidavit acknowledging that voter fraud is a serious criminal offense. Um, yeah. And the signatures, you know, your signature on that um, envelope is key. Um, the ballot will be rejected if you don't sign on that line. Um, we have never seen, um, to my knowledge, real issues of voter fraud, nor have we seen them in any of the states that use this methodology of uh, this process of voting. Um, so I, I am I'm not worried about extensive voter fraud because, again, it's just it's just not a big thing. Um, it's, it's just not a thing, you know, to put it colloquially. So, uh, so we are, the clerks are all looking for those signatures um, and ballots will be rejected if there is no signature on that affidavit. Um, 
but again, I, I think we're in quite quite good shape um, in terms of our ballots being able to come in and uh, voters being responsible. Okay, uh, Senator Rouse, um, thank you very much for your time. I hope I hope people can fix the post office because lots of people are going to have late fees on everything. Lots of people, particularly older people, may, don't, they don't yeah. they're not paying their bills online. They're paying them uh, uh, by mail, and you hear story after story, anecdotally, of a week, two weeks. Three weeks. I mean, it's nuts. Something's really wrong. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm I'm real grateful to uh, you know Senator Markey, Senator Warren, um, you know many members of our federal um, Congresswoman Presley who are doing a lot of work right now to um, boost the efforts to uh, save the USPS um, and make sure that the USPS is uh, functioning correctly. And, and, you know, this isn't just about voting, right? This is also about medication right, and other right. bills, as you, read, yep. you know, as you mentioned. I mean, the, the ramifications of our mail service not working yeah. um, is, are, are very significant, well beyond um, voting, although, of course, voting is top of everybody's mind. And, and also, you know, again, uh, deep appreciation to our Attorney General, Maura Healy, and her colleagues, uh, you know, yep. Attorneys General across the country that are, that are actively pursuing this. Um, and, you know, Maura Healy has a really good track record when it comes to suing Donald Trump. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so I'll be hey. keeping my eye out on that. Okay, State Senator, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, State Senator Becca Roush is a Democrat from Needham. Well, coming up, for many dreamers, now that the president is trying to dismantle DACA, the prospect of getting a job has become a nightmare. Ali Narani joins us for that and more on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. President Trump has figured out a way to circumvent protections for migrant children by using private contractors to round them up, by detaining them in hotels, and then deporting them to their home countries on an accelerated timeline. It's not just another attack on the asylum system. It's denying these migrant children legal rights. Joining us on the line to talk about this, a blow to the DACA recipients in pursuit of the American dream and other immigration headlines is Ali Narani. Ali is the executive director of the National Immigration Forum. His latest book, There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities Overcome Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of American Immigration. Ali Narani, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for calling in. Hey, great. Thank you. for Thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, before we get back to the kids and, and DACA, um, since the election is on so many people's minds, Ali, I want to talk about these stories about uh, the impact of immigrants on voting in 2020. What do we know about where their votes will matter most and how it will matter? Well, you know, the assumption here is that the immigrants or the foreign-born vote, you know, immigrants who have naturalized and become U.S. citizens, um, that their vote will play a disproportionate impact in a place like California or Arizona, uh, places where, you know, we're, we're led to believe that that's where immigrants have moved over time. The reality is that when you look at the growth in the foreign-born community more recently, it's really important parts of the country where you see the share of eligible voters who are foreign-born really skyrocket. So the new American economy, a really helpful uh, uh, and very, very good uh, think tank out of New York, they released some new data last week that found that in Miami-Dade, Florida, 
for, there's a, a 48% of voters are for, of eligible voters, excuse me, are foreign born. So Florida, wow. not only in Miami-Dade, but in Broward, Florida. The ones that are interesting to me is Fort Bend, Texas. 22% of eligible voters in Fort Bend, Texas are foreign born. And, you know, I've been to Fort Bend a few times, and Fort Bend is a, it's a wealthy suburb of Houston. Uh, and you drive into there, it's like this mix of Asian, South Asian, Latino communities. Um, but then you also have Gwinnett, Georgia, fills out the top 10, um, where 18% of eligible, eligible voters are foreign born. So Georgia, uh, Texas, South Florida, you know, these are communities that are just going to see a disproportionate impact of foreign born voters this November. Do you, have, you, you mentioned that there's a shift. I mean, is this, is this drastically shifted from the last election? And if so, do we have a sense of what uh, get-out-the-vote efforts might be and, and how, ultimately how powerful this relatively new electorate might be? Well, certainly in states like uh, Texas and Georgia, um, uh, Georgia mainly because of the influx of uh, the foreign-born residents over the last, say, 10, 15 years in Texas, we've seen a real spike in naturalization rates. Um, so in those two states, I think, you know, a lot of this is a recent change. Obviously, Florida with large Cuban and then South American population, it's been ongoing. But this is the real opportunity for both Democrats and Republicans. OK, how are they going to engage, persuade and then mobilize these voters? Um, you know, when I talk to my my colleagues who are doing voter mobilization work, they say over and over again that neither party is doing any sort of a good job of really reaching out to these voters and really tapping into this potential. Well, you know, you mentioned assumptions, Ali. I think there's often an assumption, too, that uh, the most recent immigrants, because of the president's seeming animus towards uh, people coming to this country, are going to vote for Democrats. But is that even necessarily true? That is, it's actually not true. Um, and this is why I think it's the, it's the Democrats' risk by just taking you know, the Latino voter for granted. I mean, Latino voters are just like anybody else. You know, they care about education, the economy, health care. And, yes, they care about immigration because it's part of their family story in a very recent way. Um, but, you know, some of our research is showing that actually among Latinx voters, you know what message is resonating the best is a faith-oriented message. So, you know, there's an opportunity for both parties to be reaching out to these voters. And, you know, in these states and many other communities, they're going to play, like I said, just a very, very important role. I didn't get what you said. Did you say a state-oriented message? What's that mean? Oh, I'm sorry, a, a faith-oriented. Message. Oh, a faith-oriented message. Sorry, okay, sorry. okay, okay. So, yeah. um, uh, 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 appeal to people's uh, religiosity, people's uh, uh, freedom of religion, that kind of thing. Exactly, and, uh, their freedom of religion, their belief in you know religious liberty, their belief in God, their belief in family values. Um, there are ways to have this conversation, whether, you know, if you're a Democrat without undermining your principles as a party, and there are ways to have this conversation with voters as Republicans not to undermine your principles of the party. But again, neither party is really investing the time or the money, and they're frankly taking them for taking this electorate for granted. So Ali and Irani, we've been spending a lot of time talking about the budget with the, within the Postal Service, um, but there's another agency getting a lot of attention right now, and that's the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services for the fact that it's uh, set to furlough two-thirds of its employees, somewhere around there, that number, um, at the end of this month. That affects citizenship ceremonies and that process. Again, this is coming befo- right before the election. Uh, what do you see happening there? 
So this has been going on really over the course of the summer where U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, part of the Department of Homeland Security, said that, like you said, they were going to have to furlough about over 13,000 employees unless they were able to get approximately, I think, $1.2 billion for Congress. Now, you know, they are saying that this uh, budget shortfall is a function of, of COVID-19. And in part, that is the case. But I would argue that the bigger issue here is that over time, the administration has actually reallocated resources within USCIS to spend amazing amounts of money on security vetting, on additional steps within the visa application processing. So there's actually been an increase in inefficiency or, 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 or really just making USCIS a much less efficient organization uh, and therefore kind of increasing their costs, which has come back to bite them in the case of COVID-19 and the budget issues that have hit. So the House over the weekend passed legislation to, to uh, in essence, provide uh, um, USCIS the resources they need. They did it on unanimous consent, meaning that there wasn't a roll call vote. The Senate could very well do the same, and that remains to be seen. But like you said, what's going to happen if these 13,000 employees are furloughed is, number one, 13,000 people are going to go without paycheck during a pandemic in a place like Nebraska. That's 1,100 people. And number two, we're going to see a backlog and a slowdown, whether it's in naturalization applications or even any other, uh, other visa applications um, that, are, that are in the pipeline. We're talking uh, to Ali Narani as we do about immigration issues. You know, Ali, there's this really sad story. These poor dreamers, I mean, here they are. Talk about having no idea what your life is going to be like in in a year, two years, or even six months about um, trying to hire the best talent. Big companies like Procter & Gamble, Bank of America, Northwestern Mutual, and some others, according to this New York Times story, uh, are reluctant to hire dreamers. Uh, even if they are extremely talented, because they're afraid of investing uh, time and money and training them and then having them deported, basically. This is... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it's... It, I, and this is, I mean, this is the perfect example of President Trump not only messing with the lives of talented dreamers, but destabilizing a workforce that companies are coming to rely on are actually actively recruiting. And, you know, just yesterday, in fact, the administration formalized that they would only renew DACA status for one-year increments instead of two-year increments as the program originally had. Um, so the administration is putting the, the lives and the livelihoods of you know, these young people in limbo um, by, you know, by, by putting these, you know, by, by in essence, not, not adding any sort of stability to the program. And leads a company like Procter and Gamble to, you know, make frankly discriminatory decisions to say, you know what, we can't, we're not going to hire you because we are afraid the administration is going to pull the rug out, not just from you, but from us. And you know, a lot of credit to uh, Malda, the Mexican American Legal Defense Education Fund, for finding these cases and and you know taking them to the courts. And do, we, do you have a sense of a shift? I understand the Bank of America, Northwestern Mutual have already settled cases uh, for, for essentially the same actions that the Procter & Gamble is engaging in, again saying, look, you might be well qualified for the job, but we're, we're just not going to make this investment and have it burn up on us. Well, I mean, and Tom Sands, the CEO of uh, Maldef, said, I think, in the, in the New York Times article that, you know, these are, you know, these are kind of highlighted cases. There's no sense of actually how often this is happening 
just with the, the small business or the mid-sized business that is making the same decision that a Procter & Gamble is. So that's why it's important that you know we're seeing these cases come into public light, um, that companies are changing their, their posture, um, and that hopefully this type of thing doesn't happen. What has uh, Vice President Biden said about DACA? Were he to be elected? Well, I know that uh, my, my understanding is that if he were to be elected, he would, number one, protect the program. Um, and then number two, I believe that within the first 100 days of uh, his administration, would be seeking to move forward with a broader immigration reform plan. Um, but, you know, underneath all of that, there are a lot of things that the that a Biden administration could do through executive authority to reverse what the Trump administration has put into place. And that's, in some ways, is, is a much harder uh, task because if you don't go through the process the right way, everything will get stuck back up in the courts. So, the, you know, if we get to that place, um, it, it's going to take a lot of smart people doing some really hard work. You know, one last thing about this. There was a lot of Republican agreement about DACA earlier, right? I mean, it isn't crazy right. to think that without President Trump leading the charge and, and his um, the people in his administration that have been very anti-immigrant, that there could be a buy-in back to the gang of ace. Um, you know, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the, the Republicans could be on board with this. I mean, a lot of businesses are on board, on board with this, doing something about DACA. The, right. You're absolutely right. I mean, DACA over and over again enjoys 70-plus you know, percent support across the political spectrum when, you know, in poll after poll. You know, members of Congress from Republican to Democrat have you know, sponsored legislation to, to move forward. The problem has always been is that the Trump administration – driven by Stephen Miller, is that they want to use, they want to hold DACA recipients hostage to cuts in legal immigration, increases in interior enforcement, and that's when these deals collapse. I remember, you know, back in early 2018, it was Chuck Schumer who said, okay, you give us permanent protections for DACA recipients, we'll give you $25 billion for the wall. And it was the Trump administration that walked away from that. We're speaking with Alia Norani. Alia, I'm not always on the show, but I feel like every time I am, we have a story of this nature that I'm about to ask about where there, the, the Trump administration has created its own systems around immigration. And, and the latest – I think that we have seen this elsewhere, but the latest example uh, are migrant children who are being de- detained in hotels, not even making their way into the U.S. immigration system because this is all being facilitated by private contractors and not the government. This is um, one of the most alarming things I think I've seen and most terrifying things that I've seen um, over the last four years. So the administration you, has used COVID-19 and the pandemic to, in essence, close down immigration to the United States, full stop. But as part of that strategy, they have said that if you are an unaccompanied minor and have presented to Border Patrol along our U.S.-Mexico border to seek asylum, they are not even going to put those kids into the system. So what they are doing now under the, the authorities of um, Article 42 kind of coming out of CDC is that they are saying that um, because of COVID-19, these children, some of them have been as young as two, are being turned over to a private contractor, not Health and Human Services, not a public you know, entity, but to a private contractor. That private contractor is then holding those children in hotels along the border until the government can expel that child back to uh, Honduras or wherever. Now, I'm intentionally using the word expel and not deportation because deportation would mean that they've gone through some sort of a 
legal process where their rights have been considered and upheld as, in essence, human beings, much less children. So these children are being expelled from the U.S. And the the most uh, um, bizarre part of this, uh, uh, since this is a family show, that's the word I'm going to use, um, <laughs> is that they are being expelled because of a threat of COVID-19. They're being tested for COVID-19 before being put on the plane, and most all of those tests are coming back negative. So the, the administration is realizing that these kids are not, uh, uh, they've not been infected with COVID, but they're still being infected with and this is the very essence of of, of shadow government. I mean, this, this has been constructed to circumvent the system. This has been constructed to circumvent the system to, in essence, put children in, uh, uh, you know, a, a dark cell um, where there is no oversight, there's no uh, protection of these children's rights or health. Um, and, you know, this is on us as a country. We have to understand that, that this is on us. Well, you know, as, as this NPR story points out, it, normally in the United States of America, when kids traveling alone, teenagers traveling alone are apprehended, um, there are these special protections because they are underage to make sure they're not sent back to these dangerous situations. And so many times you had the same, same story where there were these uh, gangs that came after children or where the children were, uh, you, you know, at, at knife point being forced into gangs and there was sexual abuse, et cetera, et cetera. So they were in dangerous situations. So what we're doing now is sending these children's right children right back to the situations that they came from without even, I mean, isn't this, isn't there, what is the law about this alley? I mean, isn't there some kind of law that normally kicks in to protect these kids? Is it, we just gotten around it because of the virus? So they have used, you know, Article 42 as a way to kind of try to get around it. Now, I believe ACLU and um, KIND, which is the Kids in Need of Defense, have taken this policy or this program to court, um, and we'll see how it all plays out. But, you know, Chad Wolf, who is the acting un- acting Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, testified in front of Congress and said, well, part of the reason that they're not detaining these kids and putting them through the system is that there's no room. That's an outright lie. And the fact is that... You know, there's a capacity to house more than 13,000 unaccompanied children currently within uh, uh, the HHS system. You know, we're not we're not talking about 13,000 children here. We're talking about a roughly, you know, somewhere between 500 to 1,000, depending on you know kind of where your reporting is coming from. But you know, the fact is that the administration would much rather just expel these kids and send a message that to Central America that we, as the United States, are going to treat children as cruelly as possible. And one last thing for me about this, you know, people were incensed when we heard about babies being separated from their parents at the border. We're getting almost no reaction to these stories about these kids being held in hotels. Is this because of the virus or the election or where's the uproar? That's uh, a really, really important question. And um, I think it's it's because of the virus. It's because there's a certain amount of kind of you know, fatigue, I think, on the part of the, the, of the public where, you know, it's kind of like every day the administration does something else awful to immigrants and they all begin to kind of blend into one. Um, and which is kind of the interesting part about the election, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, because it's not just the eligible voter who is a naturalized U.S. citizen is going to play an outsized impact on this election because of these issues in part, but it's also going to be that suburban mother who was 
reading this article, who is listening to this conversation, who has seen these stories um, over the course of the last three or four years, is going to ask herself, you know, that kid who was separated from their mother, and that kid who was being held in a hotel, that kid is the same age as my child. That kid looks like my child's friends. And I believe very strongly that, you know, the way the administration is, is handling immigration is actually going to push suburban mothers away from uh, the Republican Party. So, Ali Narani, staying with uh, people who are officially detained in, in centers, tell us about this, uh, what we're learning coming out of Florida, where Muslim detainees are, the, the food options they're given are either pork or expired meals. Pork, of course, is just not acceptable as part of Muslim culture, and yet this is what they're offered. Well, so this is, um, uh, it's the function of, in essence, kind of a, a, an immigration detention system that has been outsourced to private contractors, in essence, the private, the private prison uh, industrial complex. So this particular company is a Chrome uh, service, Chrome Services, and they're running a processing center in Miami. And there was some reporting, I would say, last year, uh, I'm sorry, last week about uh, Muslim detainees, like you said, being given pork or expired uh, um, uh, uh, halal food. Now, a couple of things have happened as a result. One is that the Orthodox Jewish community has engaged in a very, very direct way with the administration and pushing back and saying, you know, if you as an administration, if we as a country believe in religious liberty, this is something that we should not be doing. And then I also know behind the scenes that uh, 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 you know, evangelical leaders across the country have also weighed in with the administration, pushing back again just on the the the, the idea of religious freedom and, and treating uh, and allowing people to practice their religion. And obviously, you know, for this particular company who has a very large contract with the administration, uh, they don't care. In fact, uh, you know, the reporting was that the chaplain uh, at the facility said, "It is what it is." Which is repeating the phrase that the president uh, used about the coronavirus. It, it, it is what it is. Um, it's, it's, Allie, I don't know how you do what you do. I mean, these stories are so hard and so upsetting. Uh, tell us about these, um, this, this school program um, that is now suffering for these uh, immigrant kids because of the virus. Well, this one is actually, I, I think, kind of a great, a great yeah. story. Um, not because of the, the, the context, but just because of what is, of people saying, you know what, we're going to figure this out. So the context here is the migrant protection protocols. Now, this was all put into place over the last year where the Trump administration said that in order for a family or an individual to pursue an asylum claim, they have to wait in Mexico until their court case is being heard. So it's led to approximately 60,000 people uh, um, in essence, kind of camping in makeshift camps on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico border from Tijuana to Brownsville. So in Tijuana, there was a community stay, or uh, uh, folks staying at a shelter there, and they realized that their kids weren't getting any sort of you know, education or schooling because, in essence, they were stranded in Tijuana. So they hook up with this organization that was actually doing providing, uh, um, um, providing education services to refugee camps in, in Greece. And this particular organization called uh, the School Box Project, um, you know, brought in a colored bus to start to teach these kids. COVID-19 hits, they have to shut down the program. And what happens is that these mothers in Tijuana said, you know what, we were teachers back in 
uh, Michoquan, um, we can bring our skills here and we can make sure that our kids in this shelter um, are, are getting a, uh, an education. So they teamed up, they started a little nonprofit, um, and they are doing their best to provide these kids uh, um, you know, some, some education. The nonprofit is actually called International Activist Youth, and they're actually recruiting college students to help teach uh, these young people uh, who are stranded in camps in, in Tijuana. You, you have a sense of what their life is like, and I love that they started with art therapy classes. <laughs> and just think about the difference that the teachers make when they come in and, and you have that you suddenly your, your world is blown open for a little bit and you have, uh, for lack of a better term, color because, you know, this colorful bus that rolls in yeah. or the teachers who are coming in or art classes. Uh, and, yeah, you get this great expansion in the middle of, of really, really dire circumstances. But I love that it starts with arts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. There, there's something a little bit upbeat to end with, Ali Narani. Um, thanks a lot. Um, uh, hope you're hanging in. Thanks for calling in. Hey, thank you as always. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Ali Narani is executive director of the National Immigration Forum. His latest book is There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities Overcome Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of American Immigration. Well, coming up with One Day Down, how much distance did the Republican Party of Trump put between the party of Lincoln? Jennifer Horn joins us for that conversation next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. So last night, the RNC kicked off the convention by positioning, positioning Trump as an inspiration, a statesman, a friend of the black community, and a leader who got it right by acting swiftly on the coronavirus outbreak. The Lincoln Project, however, offered some counter-programming. On March 31st in the Trump White House, Trump's COVID team, led by Jared Kushner, decided to ignore testing in states with Democratic governors. Evil was in that room. Oh, it looked like any other bureaucratic meeting. There were PowerPoints, spreadsheets, briefings, and estimates of the dead. It was that meeting that led to Trump policies that would kill more Americans than Pearl Harbor, Vietnam, and 9-11. More Americans than World War I. It was deliberate, cold, political, premeditated. Some people say Trump and Kushner were incompetent when it came to COVID, but let's call it what it is. It is what it is. Evil. Wow. Okay. Jennifer Horn is the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, which is aiming to get conservatives and Republicans to turn away from Trumpism, consider non-conservative politicians instead, and as the Washington Post, Post put it, uh, to preserve the union, the Lincoln Project wants to drive Trump out of office by driving him nuts. <laughs> Jennifer, <laughs> Horn. Jennifer Horn, welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Great to talk to you again. Whatever it takes, Marjorie, right? Whatever it takes. <laughs> Whatever it takes. So, so, so. so before we get to um, more of what you're doing at the Lincoln Project, d d tell us what you thought of last night. 
Uh, well, first, I just want to say, go on the record and saying, I'm so offended that Jim is clearly trying to avoid me. That's number one. <laughs> Great to talk to John, but clearly Jim is trying to avoid me. Um, Jared, Jared, Jared. Jared Jared's. Uh, my apologies. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> See, uh, I'm I'm so I'm so upset. I can't yeah. think clearly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think to, I think last night, frankly, was exactly what um, you would have expected. And you know, a couple of things. You know, from a from the technical perspective, the production perspective of all this, regardless of how you feel about politics or or um, you know policy or anything else, the Democrats did an amazingly good job. They surprised everyone at what they were able to produce and present to the country. And so from that perspective, there's really no competition. But the thing is with these conventions, the whole idea behind a convention is that you're supposed to be unifying and rallying your base and pushing them out into the general election with a message and, uh, you know, that and an energy that will start to wrap in all those general election voters that you need so badly in order to win. And so I would suggest that what we saw last night from the RNC is that they've got the, the first part down pat. Their base is unified. They're all in for Trump. Um, you know, it's it, it, it. I hate to say this, but it is cult like in, in, yeah. in the degree to which they have done this, including going so far as saying, so this year we're not going to bother with a party platform. We're just going to say we're all in for Trump. That's that's what happened with them and their platform. Never mind a statement of principles or letting the American people know if you vote Republican, here's what you get. We're just going to say we're all in for Trump. So on that part, good job. On the other part, where they need to present a message that is inclusive and will speak to undecided voters or independents or a couple of percentage points of Democrats, which he would need in order to be able to win the 270, um, I, I think it's they failed completely. And unfortunately, when you look at the uh, speakers that are lined up for the rest of the week, it, it, you, there's no encouragement that they're that they're going to do otherwise. Well, this plays into what you're your organization, the Lincoln Project, is, but 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 how, with the ground that the Republican Party covered last night, how does this veer off f- enough for you to establish the Lincoln pro- to with your colleagues establish the Lincoln Project? Well, the Lincoln Project from the beginning has been about defeating Trump and Trumpism, and uh, I mean what we saw at the convention last night was just a, an encapsulation of Trumpism. It, it's what it is, uh, but so it it doesn't really matter what they do or don't say at the convention, our principle and our purpose um, is to defeat a a president who poses an existential threat to the future of the Republic. And um, it's not about saying, you know, oh, I didn't like him at the, to begin with, or, oh, I wish he wouldn't tweet. I wish he would just, you know, just do his job and, and, and not tweet. Oh, you know, he's, he's just an unconventional politician. He's not an insider. No, that's all garbage. And what we've seen from the last three and a half years from this president is that he's a genuinely dangerous person. And those who say that he's just not very smart or just not politically tuned in are uh, are completely underestimating who he is and what he's doing. And that ad that you just played, Marjorie, our evil ad, somebody said to me yesterday, so why go after Jared Kushner? Because Jared Kushner uh, has an extraordinary influence over this president and the policies that they roll out that affect the American people. And in this particular case, it was Jared Kushner, as has been reported from, you know, widely on credible sources, who came up with the idea of underserving um, 
states that are led by Democratic governors. And so what happened? You decided that your response to a global pandemic would intentionally underserve some portion of the American people. That's evil. Over 177,000 Americans have lost their lives in the last five months. And that's why. So this isn't about platforms or conventions or anything else. That's why we have to defeat Donald Trump. Jennifer Horn, um, uh, you had a great piece in the Union Manchester Union Leader. Uh, and one of the things you asked, which struck home with me, is that I, I get some of the Republicans that were worried about being primaried. I mean, I don't think it's obviously a profile in courage, but I understand that their excuses, they're worried about getting reelected. Not a great excuse, but there it is. But I, I wonder about the rest of us. You know, as you point out, uh, the president himself has talked about slowing the tested, uh, testing right. for COVID-19 so we wouldn't find more, more tests. He's admitted he wants to defund the post office so he can really sabotage elections. It's like with a, the frog in the water. You know, you, get, you, you put the frog in the hot water, he jumps right out. You put the frog in the cool water and let it slowly heat up. You don't realize right. you're, you're getting boiled till you're dead. I mean, is that what That's, <laughs> we don't... That- that's exactly it. That's exactly it. That, you know, Donald Trump, and I'm not the first person to say this, Donald Trump says out loud what most politicians would only whisper. Yeah. You know, so um, he's, and, and, and I think that he's, I, I don't think it's because he's not a politician. I think it's intentional. I think it's strategic to exactly what you just said. From day one, he says the most outrageous things so that when you see and hear the more outrageous things, you have become numb to it. So Donald Trump has gone on the record more than once in more than one in, in many ways, saying that um, we have to slow down the testing so that we don't see so many positive results. And what that means is that we're not tracking the spread of a virus, a deadly virus that has become a pandemic. The first step to stopping it and saving lives is to track its spread. And this president has admitted that he's slowed that down. He got in the way of ventilators. He got in the way of testing. He got in the way of truly, he, they, he talks about closing our borders, being the first to close the borders, and they did it so early. That is a lie. We were like 27th or 34th of the countries in the, in the world to, close, to try to close our borders. And then we didn't really close them when he said we did. So, and, and it's, you know, it's the same with, with, with everything he does. Um, it's, he says it out loud. It just seems so outrageous. It couldn't possibly be true. And then we all go on to the next crazy thing that the president says. And what we've learned under this pandemic is that when we, when we allow that to happen, you know, 177,000 Americans die from it. Well, the people who can affect change, of course, are the Republicans in office. And Mm -hmm. we, we don't see them flocking to your organization. So, how what's the strategy right. is it just with the voters who are, are paying attention to your ads where you're placing them or do you intend to try right. to get some of those people to come over well first i would note that they're also not flocking to become speakers at their own party's national convention which i find fascinating that's with a great very, point that's yes, very few very yeah. few and normally if you're in a in a primary or heading into a tough general election you'd want to be there in front of the base excuse me, and you would want that national stage, you know, to, to speak. 
but it, all, it, probably three of them are, are there. I, I, I didn't, you know, lost track of, the, of counting everybody, but very few have, have um, put themselves in that position. It's because they know what we know, that Donald Trump has become um, an extreme liability in these last couple of months. As for, you're right, we need to speak to Republicans. And um, in order for Joe Biden to win, we, we, because we're not, unlike the president, we're not just spouting stuff and, and, you know, throwing up everything in our minds out into the public. There's actually a strategy behind what we are doing. Um, and we know we need to move about three or 4% of Republicans over to Joe Biden in order to make sure that Joe Biden wins. We also know that there's a larger percentage of that that are soft. Maybe it's 10%. I don't know the exact number. Um, maybe it's a little more than that. It changes from week to week of soft Republicans who know that they cannot and will not vote for Donald Trump, but they need to be encouraged to take the next step and vote for Joe Biden. And so that's who we're targeting. And there's a lot of talk about how the COVID restrictions get in the way of kind of the traditional grassroots campaigning. But we've been very effective at circumventing that. We have a very broad, um, I'm sorry, it's actually the opposite. We have a very targeted digital operation where we are moving our message and our ads and our information to exactly those voters that we need to move on this. We know which states we need to be in. We know which counties we need to be in. We know which people care about the message in one ad versus the message in another ad. And we've been very aggressive and we're going to become more aggressive. Everybody, people have said to me, you know, gosh, you guys really go after it. I, I just, people have to understand we have only just begun. You know, these, we're not in technically in the general election until this convention is over, and then we're going to get aggressive. So is the focus just gradual as you do this, as opposed to a, a tipping point that might come where you get those, as you describe them, the, the soft Republicans? I think yeah. a lot of people have been waiting for a tipping point for a long time, and it has not come in three and a half, more than three and a half years. Well, I would suggest actually that it may have come. You know, and you, never, never, you never really know where the tipping point is until until you're looking back at it from a historic perspective sometimes. And um, the, president, the president's management of, this, of the coronavirus, of the pandemic, so blatantly putting his ambition and his narcissism ahead of the health and well-being of the American people, I think will be seen as a tipping point when we look back and, it, and kind of pick apart this election. Um, and we see that very clearly as we look um, not just – um, from the reactions that we get from people, but as we look at the data, that um, the issue that Republicans are, are are responding to most strongly is the the loss of life because of his uh, ego and his power trip, and the uh, resulting economic devastation that so many Americans are feeling because of it. Um, so I, I think that that will be seen as a tipping point. Um, as far as I, the, the people that we're talking to, I, I think it's really important to remember. And, I, and I've, I said this even when I was in a very partisan role as chairman. I, I used to say this about the Democrats, and I think it's important for us to remember this about Republicans as well. There's clearly this base who are going to be with the president, no matter what horrible, bigoted, misogynistic thing he says or does. But the majority of Republicans are, are good people who think that they are doing a good thing, who are trying to figure out what is a good thing. And I said the same thing about Democrats. The majority of Americans are good people and they want a better future for the next generation. And so we really, from my perspective, we're trying to speak to that shared decency that the American people have 
and, and help them to understand that that means in this particular case, we have to put partisanship aside. We're talking to Jennifer Horn. She's the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party and one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, which has a lot of Republican heavy hitters involved. You know, operatives Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt, George T. Conway III, Rich uh, Galen uh, was was. I don't know if he's still there. He was one of the co-founders. Is he Reed, still there? Reed Galen. Reed Galen. Sorry, Reed yep. Galen. Yep. Yeah. Um, George Conway just left, as we as we know, and everybody's read about Kellyanne Conway, advisor of the president. She's stepping uh, out of the White House at the end of this month, and their 15-year-old daughter has been all over social media. She wants to be emancipated. She's emancipated. She's mad at her parents. Um, right. Is this – it could be just a family thing, although I'm always suspicious when people say it's a family thing. Um, uh, but is that – you're understanding this is a family thing, and what – difference does it make to President Trump that Kellyanne Conway, one of his most talented, whether you like her or not, uh, uh, apologists, is leaving? Yeah. So um, I have extraordinary respect for George Conway. I did not know him until I got involved in this project. And I would work with him again in a heartbeat. I just think the world of him. I am not going to discuss their family or their children or anything like that. That is um, entirely between them. And, and frankly, it's disturbing to me that it those types of things become so public in this age of social media. Um, as far as, you know, at this president losing one of his most talented advisors is absolutely a, um, you know, a, a negative. It's absolutely going to hit, hurt him going forward. Um, and we, we've seen it, though, you know, throughout his presidency as one, you know, every time you think he's got somebody in there who might be good, that person ends up leaving or getting kicked out at some point along the way. It's, it's part of what makes him so unstable and so dangerous. Um, so, you know, any operation, any, any politician, any operation needs their best people in place. And when you lose one, absolutely, it's going to hurt. What do you think about um, the, the Biden has been ahead in, in polls? Lots of people are very cynical about polls after 2016. Um, but the president still gets very strong marks from the economy. Uh, and there's a lot of people who think that America is a much more racist nation than we thought and that the appeals last night to uh, racism, frankly, um, yeah. resonate with millions of Americans. Well, I think that that's that to some degree there has always been um, a base of racism in our country. We know that, and we know where it comes from. We know what it's founded in, and um, and it's something that, as a as a people, I, we you know, it's not just that you have to be willing to acknowledge it, but you have to be willing to confront it, and push back on it, and uh, be part of the solution. You know, be part of it. Doesn't I don't care if you're black or brown or white or green or orange. If you're not willing to speak up loudly and be part of the the solution then you just are part of the problem in this case. And what's happened under Donald Trump is that, um, you know, for a long time, you know, I guess you could measure that we had made progress to, uh, on the issue because it had become unacceptable to speak out, you know, if that's how you felt. It, it, was, it was the kind of things that, you know, you, you kind of whispered about or you had to make sure you were with other like-minded bigots before you could say really how you felt. And this president has somehow made it okay for people who are, used to be closet bigots to be out loud and, um, you know, active and, and, and embrace them and call them good people on both sides. It's extraordinarily damaging Not, in a lot of ways. It really divides us as a country, and that means that it weakens us every way economically, national security, any kind of policy you want. When we are deeply divided, we are hurt. Um, so, so it's dangerous. But 
it also what has what I think we've seen, and this is what I think people are starting to really feel the the ache of, is that it's really damaged our American spirit. Yeah. It has real it has hurt people. And uh, and I hope my deepest hope and, and honestly my belief is that that is going to um, push a lot of people on election day, whether they ever admit it to a pollster or their friends and family or not. It's going to push them to do the right thing and vote for Joe Biden just because he's a decent human being. And Donald Trump so obviously is not. Well, Jennifer Horn, thank you. I got a big kick out of your ads. They're really wild. <laughs> we'll talk people- to you again soon. People should look for them. They're all at lincolnproject.us. That is right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Everybody take care. You too. Jennifer Horn is the former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party and one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, which is aiming to get conservatives and Republicans to turn away from Trumpism and consider non-conservative politicians instead. Coming up, did the RNC break the fact-checking machine last night? CNN's John King is here to go over the kickoff of the Republican National Convention and the other political headlines swirling about right now. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jared Bowen in for Jim Browdy. And joining us on the line to go over the latest headlines is John King, CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays and Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Hello, John King. Hello. How are you this Tuesday? Well, I mean, I'm in my usual panic state, John King, but uh, I, 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 I watched a lot of your coverage last night, and um, the consensus seemed to be that a lot of the RNC information was wrong, misleading, or outright lies? Uh, the convention uh, <laughs> tracked the candidate, if you will. Uh, look, yeah. this is, this is I, 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 sometimes I make jokes about this just because I need uh, uh, comic relief in my life, I guess, sometimes. Yeah. But it, it's actually stressful, and it's shameful, and it's disappointing um, that we have to think about the president of the United States, and we have to be on constant alert um, for things that are misleading, things that are not truthful, and things that are outright lies. And I make a distinction between the three different gradations, if you will, because let's be fair. Um, there was a lot of p- political hyperbole at the Democratic Convention, too. Yep. And if you want to run it through you know, literal fact machines, all politicians exaggerate, all politicians spin, all politicians cherry pick, right? You take information that's favorable to you. Joe Biden, for example, did not give a speech saying, hey, I'm the guy who passed the 1994 crime bill. Right. Hey, I'm the, guy, I'm the guy who thought busing was a disaster. Um, you know, so let, let's be fair, right? We don't expect the president to say, hey, I'm the guy on the Access Hollywood tape. Um, however, you do, you do, you know, basic facts are facts. Um, so there's political hyperbole, there's spin, and then there's things that are just wrong. So what they did last night on coronavirus was clever, uh, I guess smart politically. It was an alternative reality. Uh, and I, I don't know that they can fool people about that. Uh, people, you know, people who are actually persuadable voters because they're living their lives with it, right? You're seeing the big study about, you know, the, the Biogen uh, conference in Boston today. Yeah. Uh, you're debating whether your kids can go back to school, whether that's a K through 12 decision or if you just drove, you know, three states over to drop them off, you know, on a college campus somewhere. Um, some of most of you or at least half of you are still working from home and those of you who've gone back it's probably you know a third of your colleagues are around everyone's living this you can't fool them about it you just can't Uh, but they're going to try and they're going to say the president acted decisively every step of the way and that's just not true now 
they were right when they play the video of you know Pelosi played this down early on, De Blasio played it down early on, Cuomo played it down. They're right about that. Everybody got this wrong, including the guy talking to you right now in Washington. Everybody was caught off guard by this. The question is, did you adapt once you got new information? If you're the president of the United States and you have access to the most the, the top scientists in the world, much more information than anyone else, did you act on it, just on the coronavirus? So I'll, I'll stop there, but some of the economic statistics they said were just either wrong or cherry-picked. Um, and, you know, they think they can convince people that Joe Biden is to the left of the squad. Um, that has not been Joe Biden's history. But that's more of a fair debate. Um, let's have it. So, John King, I, I was really struck. I think we were all tuning in last night, a, a lot of us looking for more in more of an analyst purpose to look at the tone of what was coming out of the Republican National Convention. And I was struck by there were two themes that kind of emerged. One was uh, people in America, people of color in America were reaching out to you because the Democrats have forgotten you. But on the other side of it, you have people like the McCluskeys saying, watch out in your suburban areas, your families will not be safe as they're flashing up images of protesters, many of whom are people of color. You can probably read between the lines what might be suggested there. What is the the GOP, what is the Trump administration campaign trying to do here? Uh, well, number one, um, they weren't terribly truthful, and I'll just put this one in the spin category, not the lie category, about what the convention was going to be, at least so far. It's only been one night. We have three more. But the, on all the briefings beforehand, they were talking about an optimistic, uplifting convention. Last night was dark and grim. It was American carnage. It was, And you know, they, this is their choice they make, and this is how the president operates. Again, this is the Trump convention. It's his family. It's his party now. Um, remember the, all the contention four years ago? Donald Trump, it was a hostile takeover four years ago. Now this is the Trump party. Uh, it is, this is the Trump organization. You could call the Republican Party. And it's all about him. Um, Joe Biden is cast not as the opposition, but as the enemy. Um, you know, Joe, Joe Biden will not have policies that lead in a different direction. He will destroy the country. Um, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty harsh. And even in our polarized times of the last 20 years, that's pretty harsh. Can they sell it? That's the question, Jared. I can't answer. Um, the McCloskeys are from an area in St. Louis that I used to visit throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. I would go back to the St. Louis suburbs all the time as the suburbs in America were changing. Right? George H.W. Bush beat Michael Dukakis. In 1988, turned it around. Dukakis had that big lead. H.W. Bush turned it around. George Bush, George W. Bush squeaked out a win. You know, I know he lost the popular vote, but against Al Gore because of the Republican strength in suburban America that started with Ronald Reagan and carried through for a while after. And the suburbs have been changing throughout the last 25 years of our lives. And I used to go back to every two years, every election, midterm elections, presidential elections, I would go back to the same area. Um, they're mostly white. They're mostly affluent. Um, but can you sell people on the idea that, you know, Black Lives Matters are marching through your neighborhood? Yes, they're disrupting you. Yes, they're loud. Uh, they're making a political statement. You come out with your guns? Uh, I, I just, I don't know. I, and, you know, it, it's fe- it, some people say it's a fearful message. And I just had Alice Stewart, a very smart Republican strategist on my show, who said, no, it's a safety message. Um, George H.W. Bush was able to win with the Will- Willie Horton ad and the idea that Michael Dukakis would make you less safe. Um, but George H.W. Bush was also his person. People viewed him very differently. Uh, he was a decent, gentle man, and people viewed him very decently than Donald Trump. So I, I don't know the answer to this one, but it's fascinating to me that they think they can do this. Well, let's look ahead a little bit. Melania Trump is going to be speaking. Uh, she got in a little hot water last time because there were sections of her speech that looked an awful lot like Michelle Obama's uh, speech when she was first lady. Um, but what do we expect from her? What do we expect from some of the other speakers going forward this week, John? 
uh, again, uh, you know, I find this fascinating in the sense that we just spent the weekend listening to tapes of the president's oldest sister say that he has no morals, he's a liar, he's yeah, a cheat, he's a right. fraud. He had somebody take his college entrance exams. Um, holy bleep! Um, <laughs> and his sisters, are, his sisters, a very respected federal judge, widely respected by you know Republicans, Democrats in the legal community. And now his wife has to go up and be a character witness for him about how he's um, a nice, decent man. Uh, I'm really interested in this one. I, I don't know Melania Trump, and, and I also think we should be careful here and let's not be too snarky. I think the way families in the White House make choices about how they want to conduct themselves is something we should all respect. She is a much less political first lady, right? Than um, you know, than uh, Michelle Obama was, than Hillary Clinton was. Um, Laura Bush wasn't overly political, um, you know, a more traditional role, if you will. And I think that's really up to them. Uh, Barron Trump is about to start his school year remote learning. Uh, Melania Trump, from all accounts, spends a ton of time working on that, worrying as she should about her son. Um, so I'm interested in watching the message tonight. But number one, she's not a terribly active campaigner anyway. She never has been. And number two, we don't have a campaign this time in the sense that you don't have as many events and running around the country. Uh, so I think it's an interesting moment. I, I'm not sure it's a lasting piece of the president. The president has a ditch among women in this country. He has lower standing now than he did against Hillary Clinton. And he just won the electoral, you know, he lost the popular vote, but won the electoral college against Hillary Clinton. So the simple math tells you he needs to improve his standing at least marginally, among women. Can Melania Trump help? Uh, again, I don't know, uh, but I think any, anybody who can take you inside the president and offer a contrasting view than what we hear from the Democrats and what we hear from the president's own sister and his own niece, um, that's interesting. We're talking to John King from CNN. A couple of side issues that I'm dying to get into you with you, John. First of all, we just talked with Jennifer Horn, one of the Lincoln Project uh, people. She, of course, was former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party. I, George Conway, who was, uh, who was also involved with the Lincoln Project, said he's stepping aside. But more important, Kellyanne Conway, who's been a very trusted advisor and a very effective advisor, if you ask me, speaker on behalf of the president, is also leaving the White House at the end of this month. She's supposed to be speaking in the convention. Does that matter? Is is there um, um, something you may know about this that is just not about their 15-year-old daughter and her being mad at her parents, as many teenagers are mad at their parents? Or is there something significant about Kellyanne Conway's departure? Uh, well, I'll get to this, uh, what I view as a significant part in a minute, but I take it completely on its face. And I think that now if they're stepping out of – if they are both stepping out of public life – um, the moment they do, we should respect them. If they are both making a decision to work on their family, I think we should respect them. The second they step across that line, uh, good for them. If that's their decision, good for them. Amen. And I wish them the best of luck. Um, I think, you know, they've obviously had very public uh, issues here. Uh, I think the significance, Marjorie, is um, whether you agree or disagree with President Trump, whether you agree, agree or disagree with Kellyanne, who's the woman who brought us the term alternative facts back yes. early, in the Trump, early in the Trump administration, she is one of the few people and one of the very few women uh, who can have difficult conversations with the president. Um, now, there are a lot of people out there rolling their eyes because there's not a great history of people on this president's staff standing up to him, of telling him he's wrong and telling him, no, we won't do that, sir. Uh, and so I, I'm not trying to, you know, uh, bronze a statue for Kellyanne Conway. Uh, however, she is, one of the, she, she is one of the few people who have been with him from almost the beginning. She was not at the very beginning, but she came on board in the 2016 campaign. Uh, she can have difficult conversations with this president, and I think her departure is a loss for him in that regard. Um, that as we go through the final 10 weeks of the campaign, uh, when you're going to have a roller coaster, the, the president is in a ditch right now. Uh, that does not mean he cannot 
win this election. He can win this election. He can still put together that electoral map again. It is there for him. But there will be difficult moments. There will be setbacks. He will make mistakes. On those, so will Joe Biden. On those moments, you have to be in a room with the people you trust the most and hear them out. And I think, I think the president loses here. And there are some people listening who are rolling their eyes saying, oh, my God, um, you, know, she is, she, you don't have to agree or disagree with her. She has deep experience in politics. She knows him very well. Um, and he is surrounded. Most of the people around him just nod or do what they're told when he speaks. He needs someone to challenge him every now and then. And he's losing someone who sometimes does. Well, in terms of losing Kellyanne Conway, who's left? I mean, presumably the family steps into I don't know why I say this. I don't, I don't know. You know much better than I do. But presumably the family steps into a, a greater role. Is there anybody left that you're aware of who who guides the ship in that way? Or does it just become a smaller effort? This is really, I I don't say this to be um, a jerk or to make fun. This is the party of Trump. Uh, We heard Donald Jr. last night. You're going to hear Ivanka. You're going to hear Eric. You're going to hear Tiffany. You're going to hear the president repeatedly. We saw him several times last night. You're going to see him several more times today. Um, You're not going to hear from Susan Collins, the vulnerable Republican senator from Maine. You're not going to hear from Martha McSally, the more conservative but vulnerable senator from Arizona. You're not going to hear from Cory Gardner, uh, the more moderate, centrist, vulnerable Republican senator from Colorado. Uh, Any Republican in a tough race, uh, Joni Ernst being the exception here, an Iowa senator who has a tough race, but most of them have just, they want no part of this. Um, this is the Trump party. Um, and it was a hostile takeover in 2016. It is all his now. Um, but the message is all about the base, all about people who are loyal to him or willing to be loyal to him right now. Um, and he makes these calls, Jared. I, I think that um, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is very important in this. He has some people over at the campaign that he trusts. But this largely comes down to the president. Uh, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has a huge oversized role. Bill Stepien is the new campaign manager. Uh, Brad Parscale, the old campaign manager, is still there in a senior role. Uh, but this is a very Trump-centric. It always has been. And in 2016, when a lot of the experienced political hands said, Mr. President, don't do this, or after the Access Hollywood tape, for example, some of them tried to get him to drop out of the race. Um, and the president, in some cases, when he gets establishment political advice, he does the opposite on purpose because he thinks that he trusts his gut um, more than the experts. And guess what? It worked for him last time. So you can understand it even if you disagree with it. So another kind of sideshow is the Jerry Falwell Jr. sex scandal. People may know he's hanging by a thread as running Liberty University. He was one of the early endorsers of Trump. He's a big guy among white Christian evangelicals who supported Trump. Now he's in this mess where he's posing with his pants open with a woman with her pants open. And the wife is allegedly having an affair with a guy, 20 years, 20 year old guy. And he was supposedly watching in the corner. I mean, it gets, it's pretty, pretty wild stuff. Does this matter again? I mean, he's got a huge following among Christian evangelicals, white Christian evangelicals, not black Christian evangelicals. Um, is this, this just, just, just more stuff or does this impact anything in any way? It's an interesting question. Number one, it impacts, it does impact this convention because if uh, Mr. Falwell were not in such trouble at the moment, you would bet that he would at least have some sort of a speaking role because he's been so loyal to the president and because that base is so important to the president. So I talk a lot about this is a race on the margins, right? Hillary Clinton wins the popular vote by a significant margin. Donald Trump gets elected to the Electoral College. Why? Well, we could debate that a number of ways. Uh, Working class white people turned out for the president in high numbers. Um, Hillary Clinton's numbers and African-American turnout in total was 
was down from 2008 and 2012 in 2016. Uh, so you can look at Detroit, you can look at Milwaukee, uh, you can look at Philadelphia, and you could say higher black turnout. You know, Hillary Clinton might have won those states. Uh, lower white working class, or at least working white working class, moving over to Trump. Uh, well, so then add the evangelicals into that. I don't know the impact, Marjorie, but if the turnout is down a little bit in places, if they are discouraged or if they see hypocrisy here. Um, I, I do think it can make a difference. Um, I, I, you look at, there's a guy, Pete Weiner, who used to work for Bill Bennett and worked in the George W. Bush administration, um, writes a lot for the Atlantic and writes an op-ed piece in the New York Times every now and then. Someone who I watch very closely, an evangelical conservative who's been, who's a policy guy. And he's one of the people who've been sort of disgusted with Trump from the beginning and is just disgusted with some of the quote-unquote establishment evangelical leaders like Falwell, who he just views as hypocrites. Yeah. Um, and so I, there, there is a debate. Every piece of our society is in a debate right now because so much is in transition. Some of it's generational, some of it's ideological, some of it's financial, some of it's Trump-centric. Um, everything's in a debate right now. So in a place where, you know, the evangelical turnout could be critical in Ohio, um, Virginia is not as competitive as it used to be anymore, but that used to be critical in Virginia. Uh, we could pick a few other states, North Carolina, for example. So if there's just a slight depression of the vote or defection of the vote or apathy, um, less activity, turning, you know, using your church network to identify voters, register, vote them, turn them out, it could make a difference. Will it? I don't know, but it's one of the things on my list to watch. John, when you were on with us last week, we were asking about the U.S. Postal Service. That was when we were anticipating DeJoy's testimony on Capitol Hill. That has now happened. To, you, you mentioned, I remember, remember you described this as government working. Government swung into action when we really brought to the fore what was happening with the United States Postal Service, slowing down the removal of sorting machines and boxes. Uh, the Postmaster General has said that he would not restore those, but but he won't continue with his cuts. So how much of the tide has been stemmed here as we wonder, out, wonder how this is going to play out with mail-in voting uh, this fall? This is definitely a, a tale of two countries in the sense that if you, if you listen to Southie's own Stevie Lynch go after Mr. DeJoy at that hearing, um, wow, right? He peeled his skin off. Um, and Mr. DeJoy was indignant at it and said, you know, I didn't write the letters you're talking about. They were done by the system. They were, this was already in place. This is normal behavior. We're not doing anything nefarious. So uh, this is definitely, it's like a, you know, it's, it is a parallel universe, what the Democrats say about the post office and what Mr. DeJoy says about the post office. So I do think it has served this purpose. It has put this front and center. It has put a lot of pressure on Mr. DeJoy to be more transparent and to turn over some documents about the thought process inside the Postal Service, and it has forced him to freeze some of these practices. You're right, he says he won't put the sorting machines back in. Um, but now Democrats are going to watch very closely on the overtime question. On the, he, DeJoy says that there was a blip, but he blames it largely on uh, a, a transition, and B, coronavirus sick issues, um, people being sick, you know, work, workforce issues, the, the, the summer delays in the mail service, he, view, he blames on that. Democrats blame on him coming in in mid-June. So I think we're going to have to watch this. I will say this. It, if nothing else, it has given a national profile to this issue. And if you're out there listening in, you know, anywhere in New England where you can hear my voice, or if you're listening on the Internet and you're anywhere in America, if you don't know now that if you plan to vote by mail, you need, as they said repeatedly during the Democratic Convention, you need a plan. Uh, you, yeah. need to know the deadline. you need to know the deadlines. You need to be proactive. You need to mail your ballot or drop it off early at a ballot box. I do think it has helped the Democrats elevate the issue dramatically. And in, frankly, Republicans think that's what this is all about from the get-go. They think that at, at a minimum, the Democrats are exaggerating 
uh, some, some Republicans say fabricating. I don't think it's a fabrication. I think there are legitimate questions here. Might the Democrats also be exaggerating or turn, at least turning up the volume on those questions to get people's attention, to motivate them to vote? Uh, I would not discount that possibility at all. We are in an election year. Okay, John King, thank you very much. I hope you get some sleep this week. <laughs> Never, never. Never. Ten weeks. There's a nap waiting in ten weeks. Okay. All right. Talk soon. Thank you so much. John King joins us every week. He's CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays and Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Well, coming up, if you wondered what life without Zoom would be like, we got a glimpse of it yesterday when there was a nationwide Zoom meltdown. We're taking your calls asking, did you have a meltdown too? We may have here at Boston Public Radio. That's next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. Before we get to uh, Zoom's meltdown yesterday, I just want to give you an update on what Governor Baker had to say today about coronavirus. And thanks to my colleague, Zoe Matthews, for taking notes. The governor said total test days are over. Uh, Total tests have increased slightly. Positive test rate has ticked down. The seven-day average is now at 1.1%. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Polito is said they're launching this ad campaign with $2 million from the Office of Travel and Tourism and Office of Housing and Economic Development to support uh, local shopping uh, for this. You know, we're having this sales tax holiday this weekend. Um, the governor also said his fi- primary focus at this point is colleges reopening. He says we're g- probably going to stay where we are on the status of reopening. He says about 50% of kids have come back, and he fully expects to be all over this in terms of checking in with the colleges. His biggest concern remains unmasked, undistanced, and unmanaged events, indoors or outdoors. He says he was criticized for saying the Biogen was a seminal event, but now we know a new reporting indicates the conference led to 20,000 cases of the virus. And he says hotspots like Everett, Chelsea, Revere are due uh, there. The, the reason is close living quarters, prevalence of outdoor gatherings without taking precautions. And he says we need to do much better messaging and communicating. And I think that is all the governor had to say. Oh, he wants Washington to get around with a, to a relief package on unemployment, and he criticized both parties for not getting that done. So back to this Zoom mess. <laughs> Six months ago, it, it is true. Most of us didn't even know what Zoom was. Today, like, we're Zoomed up 24-7. It's a basic and essential utility. And for those of us who didn't realize how dependent we've become, we learned the hard way yesterday with the nationwide Zoom outage. I think it was mostly in the East Coast, also in the U.K., but it was a real problem until mid-afternoon. And we're taking your calls, asking you, did you survive yesterday's Zoom outage? How dependent have you become? How much of your work from home or learn from home with schools opening all over the place was upended? Or did the outage give you a much-needed opportunity to up to opt out of the daily Zoom call or meeting? Did you find a way uh, uh, to get away from Zoom as a relief or not? 877-301-8970 is the number, 877-301-8970, or bprwgbh.org is the email, or you can tweet us at boss 
public radio. Well, I think it's fair to say, Jared, you and I had a nervous breakdown yesterday. Because <laughs> when, when, we look at each other during Zoom, right, yep, to yep. see what we're doing. And you're going to ask the question, am I going to ask the question? It's kind of like the lifeline. And when it was gone, we had to Facebook on, on our phone, FaceTime, rather, on our phone. And you didn't have any battery left in your phone. Well, yeah. Well, wasn't that a nice little surprise that you use FaceTime for five minutes and you suddenly it drains your battery down to 2% and then exactly. I can't see you again? Exactly. Because honestly, Zoom, the way we use it, it feels like you're just here with me. Yeah, it does. It doesn't feel it's like great. you're in another room. No. Yeah, there's no lapse in the audio. People hear everything just as it, it was. Yeah, that was terrible. But I'll, let me back up and say, this. I think this is also pretty scary because we have put all of our eggs in this big <laughs> Zoom basket, right? And it's interesting that you use that word, you in your intro because it kind of is now. We are all relying on this, so we now understand the ramifications if Zoom goes down, especially as we understand that all of these schools were using it as they start to yes. open up and colleges. And, and as we discovered yesterday, we didn't really have a very effective alternative with my phone with 3% charge trying to <laughs> FaceTime you. And so we just realized how quickly we have become so reliant on this technology. Yeah, and the schools, can you imagine, especially if you're, I feel so terrible for these parents that are home with little kids, you know, and they're looking forward to the Zoom lessons and they're looking forward to, uh, you know, having any kind of interaction on the computer for the kids so they can try to get some work done. Their whole day is thrown into chaos. I mean, the kids can't do Zoom. They can't do Zoom with the office. It's just, it's just kind of a mess. I mean, a lot of people say they're sick of Zoom. But I, I don't know. Zoom has been very easy to use, and most of the time it does work. I think they've gone from – hasn't their, their usage has gone absolutely through the roof, and the coronavirus has gone way, way up. So what do you think? Is Zoom a good thing, a bad thing? Did you get through the day yesterday? Did you also have a nervous breakdown? <laughs> you know, the one good thing about not having Zoom – is I feel an obligation, like to brush my hair and put on my makeup, you know, because I don't want to look like a total mess. I was mess thinking that you just on put Zoom. on your lipstick. I was like, that's I always, so nice. I always have my Nivea lip gloss right at right at hand, and I use it. Uh, I, I I use it all the time. I don't want to look terrible on Zoom, so I suppose that's one good thing. But mostly, I think we've become dependent on it very quickly. Well, because we, we, I think it also shows us how much we we rely on human cues. You can't just have a phone call. You need to you need to understand facial expressions. It's about tone that you read uh, that you can't necessarily pick up. Although I was listening hard to you yesterday when I couldn't see you trying to figure out <laughs> what you were saying and what you wanted to do next. Our number is eight seven seven three zero one eight nine seven zero. What does Zoom mean to you? What did yesterday mean when Zoom was out for uh, almost all of the morning and at least part of the afternoon? Did you survive? Let's go first to Pamela in Lexington. How'd it go for you, Pamela? Well, Marjorie, my daughter um, is a freshman. First day of her college career was starting yesterday in the bedroom, (laughs) (laughs) which she thought she would be in Washington, D.C. at American University. However, they had announced on uh, July 30th, please don't bother coming. So that was one more disappointment and a whole bunch of, uh, you know, disappointments. But I was so proud of her that she washed her hair, like you said, to your point. She (laughs) put a little makeup on. She put a little, you know, shirt on. And I thought, oh, good, okay, this is going pretty well. She's ready. She had had breakfast. She's ready for her first government class. And she gets an email that says, sorry, class is canceled. And I was devastated for her because she just said, yeah, this is the way it's been going this year for me. But 
Yeah, it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 how do you feel about it? Do you have to pay the full tuition even though she's not there? Full tuition and bo- room well, and board and all that? that? Get, no room and board, which is That's very good. kind, right? That's good. <laughs> but um, 10% off of the tuition bill. So the bill is still quite steep. Um, and obviously, today there was another class that was canceled due to the professor needing to be uh, a family emergency. So now we're, I think we're two for two with the first two days of college. <laughs> oh, Pamela, it's, it, I feel so bad for kids, kids your daughter's age. I mean, it's so tough. Senior year in high school, I mean, for some of us, it, that was the highlight. It's all been downhill from there. <laughs> you don't get the senior year. You don't get the first few weeks in college. Good luck. Good luck, and thanks for the call, Pamela. Well, I think a lot of that senior year of college had nothing to do with it when you're inside the classroom or in front of the Zoom camera anyway, right? No, it, 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 it probably did not. This is from uh, Joseph, who's a high school history teacher. And once he starts re- using remote classes in his school, they'll be using Google Meet as part of the Google Classroom. He says, imagine what happens on September 15th when all those public school classrooms all hit Google Meet at 7.30 a.m. Exactly. That was the first thought I had. That when I saw the map, uh, somebody had posted a map online about where all of the outages were, especially up and down the, the East Coast, and you realize that it was so focused around cities or college towns, and you just realize that this is this might happen again, especially since, as you mentioned, I looked up the numbers, by the way, Marjorie, there were uh, 10 million Zoom users in 2019. Now there are hundreds of millions of people. That's a pretty quick ex- escalation. Absolutely. Let's go to Donald and Waltham. Thanks for calling, Donald. Hi. Well, I've um, been around computers for quite a while. I've been uh, started in 85 when we had something called token ring. So, oh, uh, gosh. I've been, a, <laughs> uh, I've been a technology analyst for several years, and I was just going to comment like the other professor, the other teacher said, we shouldn't be relying upon Zoom only. Your disaster recovery plan should have alternatives in it, such as Google Meet, Skype, other technologies as well, too, so that if Zoom goes down, you can at least continue on with your classes during the day. Yeah, you know, that's a good point, Donald. I know nothing about computers, but since you do, weren't we all using Skype? Wasn't that what everybody used to talk to their children or grandchildren or significant others across the country or away at college? Wasn't that the big thing? How come Zoom so quickly overtook it or has it? Uh, name brand. They, they just done a really good job with marketing their name out there, and yeah. we're the ones to go through to for your meetings. Um, and if anybody wants to know more about online meeting tools and everything, there's a great website that I use all the time called CNET. How do you spell C-N-E-T it? CNET dot com. Thank you. Okay, so if I go there, I'll find all these different places to do alternatives to Zoom. Is that what you're telling me, Donald? Right. They they have a really good roundup of alternative tools to use. So you could say that you're interested in Zoom, but you want to know about the others as well. And from there, you could pick what your disaster recovery plan should entail for your alternative should Zoom go down. Thank you very much for the call, Donald. We're talking about Zoom and the fact that it went down for significant uh, uh, hours yesterday. I think it was from early in the morning till about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was significantly 
bad on the East Coast and in Great Britain. So how did you survive without Zoom? Are you glad you didn't have to put up with it for one day? Or was it just devastating to you? Our number is 877-301-8970. And the email is bpr at wgbh.org. I mean, I, I, I think we have become, and Donald made a good point about the marketing of Zoom. I mean, Zoom cocktail parties, Zoom weddings. I read Zoom the New- theater. Zoom theater. That's right. Didn't you have something to do with the Zoom theater? Didn't I you? did. I, yeah. I, I, I covered a play, um, Natasha versus, State versus Natasha Benigna, which is a live play presented on Zoom. We've yeah. all adopted it, and but none of us, with as Donald just mentioned, we have lots of meetings, you know, to plan for our our workflow, editorial uh-huh. meetings. We've never had a disaster recovery plan, which I guess we'll have to add to the mix <laughs> now going forward for the next time this happens, which probably will. Well, the other thing is, I read the women's sports pages every Sunday, <laughs> otherwise known as the wedding section of the New York Times. It's really fun, especially now, to see what people are doing during their weddings, and it is amazing how many people have done. The Zoom deal, where they have like eight people or ten people. I did one f- of those. Oops, you did. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, you did a Zoom wedding. I did do a Zoom wedding. Yeah. How how'd it go? It wasn't my wedding, just to be clear. Yeah. Just to be clear. Okay. It was really nice, actually. It was it was very well shot. It was very fun. To, it was it was very sweet when you could see all of the other people who were there with you. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy is the number. What are you doing about uh, Zoom being gone? Let's go to Steve, who is on Cape Cod. Hi, Steve. Hey, Marjorie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So I know a lot about this uh, streaming business because I'm in it. Oh. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was uh, CBS's first vendor in the Boston market. Really? Uh, doing, their first, doing their first streams for uh, the radio side back in 2005. Wow. Uh, so I know, this, I know this business pretty well. Uh, so, so give us some advice. What do we do? Use your phones. <laughs> Use our phones. <laughs> okay. So I guess you're not a fan, Steve. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you gotta keep it. There's gonna be outages because of server capacity. Yeah. Because of network capacity. And yep. that's All to do with the infrastructure. And if the amount of bandwidth that is going through these pipes can't be supported uh, by the by the infrastructure, by the servers, then you're going to have what happened yesterday on Zoom. Now, there are ways to do that, but when you do it from from one one computer to another, you know, from one person to another without some sort of buffer in between, there's all kinds of security issues and delivery issues that will happen. So you have to... You know, I just really think that this is what you're going to have to get used to as a society. I mean, I have my own streaming platform. It works It works for some people. It doesn't work for others. How, however, you know, it's uh, use your phones. Call people. Use our phones. People. Okay, Steve, That w- wise words for the end of the show. Thank you very much for the call. Did you hear that, Jared? Use your phones. We did use our phones, but you didn't have any battery in your phone, so that, that oh, didn't... <laughs> oh, use your charged phone. Oh. Yeah, use your charged Make phone. Make that clear. Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's a start. Hey, thanks, Jared. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can tune in tomorrow for medical ethicist Art Kaplan, Juliet Kayam, and Trump advisor Corey Lewandowski on the RNC Night 2. Our, two, our crew is Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, and Aidan Connolly. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. Our offsite engineers are Miles Smith and Dave Goldstein. 
Jim, Jim Browdy is on vacation, so I won't ask what's on the show tonight. But Adam Riley is doing Greater Boston for Jim, and I'm sure he's doing an able job. So you can tune in. You can still see Greater Boston at 7 o'clock, uh, but Jim is off. Adam Riley is in. So thanks again, Jared, for filling in. And I'm really glad we had a nice, calm uh, day today on Zoom and not like a, a nervous breakdown day like yesterday. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We earned it. I'm Jared Bowen. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks again for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a great day.